Hello, I'm Adam Conover, and welcome to Humans Who Make Games, a long-form, intimate conversation with the people who make some of your favorite video games. Now, on the show today, we have Sam Barlow. He's a game designer and storyteller, and he's the man behind the hit game, Her Story. Now, this game was a surprise smash hit when it came out in 2015. It combined full-motion video with whodunit storytelling in a way that allowed the story to come together, not just to be given to you, spoon-fed by a programmer, but actually allowed the story to take place in your own mind, allowed you to follow your own thread of interest until you had unraveled the mystery for yourself. We talk about exactly how Sam did that in this interview, but go play it yourself if you haven't. It truly is an amazing game, and it's usually available very, very cheaply since it's been out for a couple of years. He also has a new game out called Telling Lies, another full-motion video game that expands its idea of what this formatted game can do. It involves multiple actors. The performances are incredible. The story is wonderful. Really fantastic. Check it out if you can. But hey, even if you haven't played these games, I think you're going to love this interview. We talk about Sam's history in the games industry, some of the surprising games that he's been behind, how he got into the industry, the early interactive fiction community, which is where I first found out about him, and how all of it relates to the state of games today. Without further ado, here's my interview with Sam Barlow. Thank you so much for being here, Sam. Thank you. Th- I'm really happy to have you in Los Angeles. Uh, you, uh, yeah. Uh, you, you, you come to L.A. often? Um, pretty often, yeah. I mean, we shot Telling Lies here for like three months, so I was kind of pretending to live here for a little bit. Yeah, you shot that game with uh, uh, real L.A. actors and actresses. Yeah, we originally we started planning to shoot it in, uh, in New York, and then when we started casting it... Uh, and we realized most of our cast were LA-based. Uh, turns out it's cheaper to fly me out and put me up in an Airbnb than it is <laughs> right. to fly and and accommodate um, actors. <laughs> so that made sense. So we kind of shifted everything over here. I had when when I first started, I had this dumb idea um, because the the game takes place uh, in different locations and, and spans the whole of America essentially. Um, I had this dumb idea that we should actually shoot it simultaneously on the west and east coast. Um, and I had that dumb idea for about five seconds. Like like you, because the game is, uh, the, a lot of the game is you're watching recorded video of Skype conversations, basically. And so you were like, we should actually record it remotely yeah. that way. Yeah, I was like, let's go super authentic. <laughs> and then and then like I shot this other thing and, and, and realizing like how much of your day is spent with cameras not working and feeds going down and you know oh yeah technical problems i was like i don't need to do this i mean recording this podcast is hard enough when we do it remotely like a, a lot of our you know when folks can't can't be in los angeles that's how we record and, and yeah it's terrible yeah. <laughs> the idea that yeah. you to record um well uh, i want to talk about that game because i i have played it and i love it and i love her story your previous game her story her story her story i never know how to is it her story or is it like this is her story. Never mind. Let's, let's see what comes up my mouth when I say it. Uh, the game is called Her Story. Oh, that's how I said it. Okay. Yeah. It almost sounds like you're saying, well, there was his story and there's her story. Like you're contrasted, but whatever. That's where I came from. Like I was, yeah, in my head, I called it Her Story very early on because I was, you know, like the the premise being you're listening to 
her story and her side of the story, mm-hmm. but also like the 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 uniqueness of that game being that you only ever hear what she says. You don't hear the questions and stuff. So, um, and then the day after it launched, I suddenly realized uh, seeing that I dislodged the feminist concept of her story <laughs> from number one in the Google rankings. <laughs> I felt I felt very bad. Um, I think it has resumed now. It's taken its its place, but. <laughs> <laughs> there's like there's like some eager 11 year old girl going like I want to learn about this thing called herstory or whatever learn about this feminist concept and they google it and they find a, a game made by a dude yeah. <laughs> it's very as the first hit that's uh, that's a patriarchy in a nutshell right there um, so you've carved out this niche for yourself making these really wonderful story based sort of uh, people call them FMV or sometimes they use the phrase full motion video games um, but the first game of yours I played was a game called Isle did people, a lot of people mention Isle to you did yeah it still come up yeah no that was uh See, that was back in 1999, yeah. I think. Um, and it's a, yeah, a text game. And it, it came out of, there was like a community, um, which I think you're familiar with, like in the late 90s yeah. online, um, which was a different type of online back then. Um, <laughs> right. It's a much smaller university-based yeah. like <laughs> yeah. dial-up modem online. That was, you know, I, I basically went to university and that was the first time I'd seen the internet. Um, yeah. And the internet was a thing you accessed by going into the computer labs and typing text to, to do things. And there was you could browse the internet, but there was like there was NASA, there was there were like there were like ten websites, <laughs> right? Right. right. Um, and lots of animated gifs. But yeah, so the uh, yeah the internet as it was, and you know this was like if you wanted to download a game, um, you would leave your phone plugged in, and, and it would take all night. Um, but of the the Games you could download, uh, text games, were cool because they were very small file sizes. Yeah, and there was this uh, mini renaissance of, of basically, as I saw it, a, a bunch of people who had grown up playing the classic text adventures. Right. By which I mean like uh, Infocom, Magnetic Scrolls, Level Nine. If you're kind of in the UK, and coming online. Uh, a few of these people had created tools that allowed you to go make your own text adventures yeah, in, in it was the like, style. It was like those companies, there was like a boom of text adventures. Infocom was huge in the U.S. And they sold tons of copies, like boxed copies in the stores. And then all those companies kind of collapsed because graphics started to exist. <laughs> and it's just like the market moved on. They, those games stopped being made. And then this really fertile hobbyist scene, like sprouted up like what maybe about 10 years later five ten years later maybe something yeah. like that but it had this feeling of so i i discovered those games because um and i loved text adventures growing up for some reason like i remember spending a lot of time playing like the original adventure like the original and it wasn't like oh here's a historic game which you know that game is what from the 70s yeah. 70s early 80s um and uh, but i just had it on my mac right it was still just a game people played and so i went on from that to play like infocom games and stuff like that and then when i was was just like a kid with a dial-up modem this was like a type of game that hobbyist community started making their own games the games started getting better and better and they were free and you could download them extremely quickly and they were like some of the most interesting game design yeah. that anybody was doing so i was like 
you know, following the community from, you know, as like a 17 year old, like reading the news group. Oh, and the really cool thing. I'm sorry. I'm like, I'm like <laughs> uh, venting about it now because I'm, I'm very excited to. Uh, it's the first time I've ever talked to someone in person who is from this community. Um, but the really cool thing was on the message boards or on the news groups, uh, the same people writing about the games were the game designers. So you yeah. could like read them. Here's my new game. And then someone would say, oh, well, here's what I think about it. And then they would reply and, go, oh, yeah, OK, I'll, I'll make a new version with that in it. Or or they'd write little essays about et cetera. It was like this very little small bedroom game design community. Um, and uh, there were like cool little revolutions in it and things like someone yeah. put out a I mean, game yeah, and influence was, other people. I'm, I'm trying to choose a word. It's not offensive here. Um, <laughs> it was basically a bunch of people who had the right brain thing going on because they were using computers and, uh, had mm -hmm. enough understanding of, of like programming and that stuff that they could build these games and figure out, like, I have to come like to make a game back then you had to compile it and, download libraries and things so like there yeah. were people that that had that understanding of the the computer side of it the programming side but also were intensely creative and driven by a desire to do interesting things with storytelling yeah which is why they were making these things and i think the the neat thing was like a text game you can type you know a thousand star cruisers descended on the planet and devastated the cities and thousands of people were turned to ash before my eyes and that's free right <laughs> right so and it, and it happens if you write it effectively it's as though it happened it has the same imp impact on the player if they're wrapped up in the game as it would you know if it were a huge graphical yeah. thing i remember playing um some one of the the more traditional games that was a huge hit in inverted commas within that group there was a uh, uh, a Lovecraftian horror game called Anchorhead. Mm -hmm. um, and I remember playing that and was so intensely drawn into it that I got up and I had to go somewhere and I went and got a coat on and picked an umbrella out because I thought it was raining and that the weather was kind of crappy because that <laughs> was the game and step outside and it was really <laughs> right. sunny and I'm like, oh, like I've been so deeply immersed in that thing. Yeah, and that game that game was horrifying. I remember uh, that, that was like... Uh, it, it's entirely a text game, but it is a horror game, and the horror moments work on you. It is frightening when you you don't know what you're about to discover, and then you enter the room and you see the horrible thing or whatever it is. It has that it has that powerful impact on you. Yeah, no, I think the but yeah. So you had this community, and um, the thing that I was drawn to was some of the more uh, ambitious stuff that was going on. So there was stuff like uh, this this guy who's, whose brain is 10 times bigger than mine, um, Andrew Plotkin, mm -hmm. who goes by Zarf, uh, did a couple of games. He did one called So Far, which is this uh, epic um, fantasy thing, like I guess shades of, of like mist and ribbon and that mm -hmm. kind of thing. Um, but it is telling a story that at, at a kind of subtextual level is about this relationship that doesn't quite work um i think like so far comes from um so close so near but yet so far mm, um mm. and it's very powerful and then you had things like uh uh there's a game called uh, photo peer by adam cadre mm -hmm. that was this kind of tragedy that you know one of the debates there was it was incredibly linear yeah, and and you had all so you had all these debates about storytelling of like interactive storytelling. Should it be about empowering the player and letting them define the story, or is it more about the kind of immersion or perspective that you get from interactivity? Um, 
so where Isle came from was you had all these really interesting storytelling experiments going on, but you still had this level of, of, of nostalgia and respect for the classics. And what that meant, like there's a thing you do when you play a text adventure, and you see this in some of the graphic games that came from this as well, where when you first boot up a text game and you want to kind of kick the tires and see like, how's this thing working? Like, is it well implemented? Um, was how you would describe it. You kind of type dumb things yeah. to to test stuff. Like there was a tradition in those classic games that if you type something that can't be done, instead of going does not compute, a good game would give you a witty little answer. Yeah. Like a lot of those classic games had this slight comic tone to them. And like I say, you see that carried on into things like Monkey Island, once the thing of graphical. And having that sense of humor often works to kind of overcome the shortcomings of of the you know the the systemic elements or or, or how these things have been implemented. Yeah, because the you know the the way these games work, I just want to back up a little bit for folks who are not as familiar with them as us. Is you know you're seeing a, a chunk of text that describes you're standing here. This is this is what you see. This is what's happening in front of you. And then there's a little prompt, and you type go north get box or whatever and the nice thing about that is it feels very free because you can kind of combine the commands like anything in the English language but of course only a certain subset of them are you know have responses that are defined programmatically uh, which means that people get frustrated if they type so if they type something that they think makes sense but the game is not programmed to respond to it so you want to have those witty responses yeah yeah it's it's yeah I think there's that the uh the challenge with those text games is the promise, which is so magical, is type anything. Yeah. Type anything and and, and it will, the story will unfold according to your wishes, Master. But the people who have played 10, 20 text adventure games know there are 20 words I'm going to use. Like the, those classic ones, there are going to be 20 verbs yeah. that are usually, you know, picking things up, moving them, pushing, pulling, opening, closing, sort of, you know, physically manipulating the mm-hmm. world model. Um, but yeah, so what you do is you, you, you boot up one of these games and... and you naturally start messing around in the same way that like, I don't know, if I'm playing a Zelda game, I'm going to, and, and there's like some cool physics in it, I'm going to pick up some pots and start smashing them and stuff and, and, and just doing this kind of dumb stuff that is essentially, uh, it's like a kid playing with blocks, right? You, you're kind of figuring out the rules of this world. And it frustrated me um, that even if I'm playing one of these very uh, artistically ambitious games, they would still feel compelled to have to have all these kind of funny things right. which kind of uh, pushed against some of that atmosphere. And it annoyed me because I would be compelled to do some of the dumb things. So, you know, a lot of times yeah. you will, if you type a swear word, right? If you type a curse word in, you would expect a funny answer. If yeah. you, uh, you know, try jumping in a context where you shouldn't jump, if you try and kill your best friend, like, the game yeah. will say something funny. I, I was going to say that uh, jump is was one of those for me where I, th- I forget what the default response was. Because a lot of times it's in the library that everyone's using to build these games. So maybe the uh, the developer like you know compiles the game and since jump was like a default response for the programming language there's a little canned response mm-hmm. of like wee you jump in place yeah. wee and like maybe you're playing like a detective game where it makes no sense for like 
one of the weird things about video games is nobody ever jumps in real life. Never <laughs> happens. It's one of the main verbs in any video yeah. game, right? Even in like, I was playing uh, Control and you can jump like crazy in Control. I'm like, no real person would jump this much. I spent right? a lot of my time in Control stood on desks. <laughs> right. <laughs> in scenarios where... People should not be stood on yeah. desks just because, like you say, the button's there. Yeah. And you're playing an adult woman in her 30s, like, jump, I mean, try to jump in real life. You can't really do it like that. You're not jumping up on desks, you know? So the idea that, you know, the game has a canned response, if no matter what game you're playing for jump, and almost no game implemented it as, like, an actual, uh, uh, you know, thing you need to do to complete the game. So it's kind of ludicrous in that way. I get your point. Um, so, yeah, so that was, I was dealing with this frustration because I would still type this stuff, right? I'd, mm -hmm. I'd be, like you say, I'm playing a detective in an atmospheric thing and, and I type something stupid just to see what the program's going to say. Um, so that was kind of the, the spark for Isle was I thought, well, what if I make a game where when I type the dumb thing and the dumb things are usually violent or like, like, you know, yeah. have 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 some connotation like that. You know, trying to kiss random characters yeah. is a popular thing to type mm -hmm. to see what the funny response is. Um, so I was like, I'm going to make a game that punishes players and makes them feel bad <laughs> for typing the dumb things. So then from that, it's like, well, what's the most mundane place to to put these people in? And it was like, okay, the the aisle of a, a grocery store. And, uh, and that was, so that was like the, the structural thing of like, this is what I want to do so that if I'm in a grocery store and I type jump and I treat that seriously, like yeah. that's a whole different story. If I'm in a grocery store and I try and attack or kiss a random woman, yeah, that's a whole different story. And so that was like the start of it was, okay, what? What does the story look like if, if someone is performing these these often kind of uh, sociopathic actions um, <laughs> in a mundane setting uh, and built it from there? And from that came this this other element of it that was it was a, a one turn game. Right. So, yeah, if you're playing a normal text adventure, you might each each thing you type is a turn. Yeah. And the world waits for you in most cases until you've typed the thing. And, you know, most games would take hundreds of turns to complete. Yeah, the whole story. Um, but because I wanted to have the breadth of response, like whatever you type, I'm going to have a, a response for it. Um, and because a lot of these stories would go in interesting directions because I'm kind of leaning into what whatever it is you type, um, I came up with the idea of, of each turn essentially being the entire experience, the entire story. So then you have questions of like, well, how do you progress if this thing resets every turn? Mm -hmm. What does that look like? Um, and emerging from that was this idea of, of the player having knowledge outside of the game um, that is not necessarily tracked within the game. So uh, if I jump, I think I'm, it's a long time since I wrote or played this game. I think if you jump... I actually tried this yesterday preparing for this interview. I played the game and, and that's... And that's literally the command that I tried. But what do you think it is? So I, I think he, he uh, the the character, I think is a he, uh, has a flashback to a, a, a car accident or something, and he's jumping out of the way, or is that a different... My memory uh, is that he, like, jumps 
uh, on the back of his cart and oh. starts. Uh, put, maybe I'm maybe I'm misremember. I tried it yesterday and now I'm misremembering what there it may was. Maybe variations of how how yeah. you jump and stuff. But um, but for example, if if, if that was what happens uh, in taking that story to its conclusion, and these are like mini little like less than short stories, like just little slices of, mm-hmm. of this character's life. Um, he may uh, comment on something in his backstory so a, a name might come up of um you know lots of these little stories deal with relationships in his past um and most of them revolve around someone with the same name but now you have that character name in your head and so when you go back in again you can try and engineer things mm-hmm. and there was an interesting arc in in making the thing which started from this very uh, you know structural place of like this is the the mechanical idea I have for this um, in trying to figure out what are all these stories? Why is this man uh, so angry or sad or upset that he's doing all these violent things? Yeah. Um, And it started to be clear that like there were multiple stories. So there's like a multidimensional thing like that. Not, not every ending you get fits with the other endings. So you start to have this uh, uh, cubist view of this story. Um, but what I found myself doing and what a lot of people at play it do is you, you start off doing the more extreme violent things and, and then you kind of try and think of the more specific things to do. And, and there comes a point where you can kind of actively try and engineer a happier ending. Mm. Um, and so then when you start thinking and taking some of the knowledge you have of these different alternate stories, you can find yourself thinking like, well, what what could I make this character do in this moment that would actually not be psychotic, that, that would maybe lead the story, and and that almost kind of lends it its its theme or its its kind of meta structure. Yeah, um, I, I it really stuck with me playing it. You know, when I downloaded it from you know the FTP site right in 1999 or 2000, whenever it was, I played it. It stuck with me both uh, uh, because it had that different structure, right. Um, First of all, the the one turn thing was brilliant because, as as we've been saying, the problem with text adventures is that you sort of disappoint the audience with what the possibilities are because when you're designing them, you can't literally respond to every text string. So you need to sort of come to an agreement with the players about like, hey, these are the kinds of text strings we're going to be able to handle. You know, get this, talk to that person, you know, et cetera. And, you know, there's there's sort of a possibility space that we're both agreeing on. But because you were doing one turn, you could – you uh, uh, and you were really just spitting out one text string to every response, you could then put all your work into writing satisfying responses for almost every single action, um, which was like a really cool way to, you know, make it make again. There's a really fun to experiment with. Like if folks are listening, go just Google Isle Sam Barlow and find like you can find a web player for it. And it's probably one of the most approachable text adventures I could recommend because it it responds so, yeah. to so many more verbs than than most games. But then also that mo- notion of progression that you're talking about where. Yeah, your progression isn't how many items do you get or how how far deep into the, you know, labyrinth of rooms do you get into, but it's your knowledge of the situation and the various systems and the guy's life and then you start can start grappling with. Like the general nexus of things is that he's upset that a woman left him that he like made a mistake with a woman many years ago in Rome, I think. 
Um, and, uh, like, and you learn that because there's like a pile, there's like a thing of gnocchi in in the freezer and you can do, you can eat the gnocchi, you can throw the gnocchi, you can buy the gnocchi, you can get the gnocchi. Nothing like eating dry, uncooked gnocchi from (laughs) the bag in a supermarket aisle to express your inner pain. But the gnocchi brings him back to Rome. When you interact with it, you get a different snippet every time for every verb based on what it is. And so then you, so that gives you the story about Rome and then you can maybe come up with with a okay, what's a prompt I can type in that's going to resolve that relationship? Um, that was such a there's a, I remember that generating a lot of discussion, and for me playing it, I was like, it was one of those games that made me think differently about the terms of game design in this space. Right? Uh, was that your was that your first game that you made? So, I mean, it depends uh, how you turn these things. I had... Uh, let, 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 let's go back a little bit, actually. Is that okay? Yeah, sure. Uh, what, what is, this is my stock question. What is your first memory of video games? What's your first game you remember playing? It's probably... Um, so, when I was a kid, um, my family lived in Tanzania in Africa for a couple of years. And when I was seven, we came back to the UK and I went to this very small village school. It was so small, there was only one girl, and she was the, the head teacher's daughter. And um, this head teacher was a very interesting character. And I think now, in retrospect, I'm grateful for this because it probably helped. But um, he, uh, he was obsessed with D.H. Lawrence. <laughs> but he would often uh, tell us just to go hang out in the woods. Like it's, it'd be like, let's not do any schoolwork this afternoon. Let's just go <laughs> hang out in the woods and explore and just like do stuff. That's great. Um, but he also like signed up to all, whatever the progressive schemes were. Uh, so we were one of the first schools to have a computer mm. in the school and that had on it like a few games. So I have, there's a game that every kid growing up in a certain time in the UK remembers called Granny's Garden, mm. which was this terrifying educational horror thing <laughs> like if you google granny's garden you'll see a bunch of people that were like this game scarred me as a kid but it it would like it was a very basic thing like it would give you like riddles and, and kind of math problems to solve but if you failed then granny the witch well, no i don't think granny was the witch like there was a witch who basically yeah. came and ate you wow and, and for the the graphics of the time like she was you know made up of of ascii blocks or something yeah and and, and had an animated mouth um she was terrifying I, i've never heard of this game that's wild yeah no this is this is foundational for a lot of uk game developers um so i have i remember that and i'm not sure if that's like me retroactively because that's the one everyone talks about, mm-hmm. whether that's boosted it. There was also, I remember, there was a text game. There was like some kind of text. It was a text adventure, and it was, I believe, pretty open-ended and maybe intentionally educational, but you were stranded on a desert island, and you had to escape. And so there was stuff like, you know, can you make a fire to, to get the attention of, of any passing boats? Uh, maybe you would get bitten by a snake, and you had to improvise Mm. it was that kind of thing but we would only get I don't know like 10-15 minute session per week each kid Hmm. on the computer so I would get this very limited (laughs) chance to try and escape the island and then I'd spend the whole week thinking like when I get my next go how am I going to so this thing kind of grew in my mind and and probably is not if I found it now like is not as rich oh yeah and, and, and dynamic as I remember it as being. Um, so there was that, and then I had a, a 
after that we got a, a home computer so like the thing in the uk was we didn't really do nintendo that that kind mm-hmm. of nes era was was much more of a niche thing in the uk we all had 8-bit home computers yeah. so you either had a, a commodore or a spectrum or as i did uh the third option uh the amstrad cpc which um like our version of trump in england is this guy alan sugar uh-huh and he he was the first apprentice i thought it was so, boris johnson but that's fine no see uh <laughs> Well, he, he predates Boris yeah, Johnson, but yeah, our, a different one. when The Apprentice first started, it was this guy, Alan Sugar, who was a, mm. a UK businessman. So he is, in his own way, responsible for everything. Um, <laughs> and uh, he decided he should have his own home computer. So the, the Amstrad, Alan Michael Sugar was his company name. Um, Amstrad was born. And because of that thing you have to do where you argue with your friends about which is which machine is best like yeah. i firmly believe the amstrad cpc <laughs> was the greatest of the machines and uh i think history does not agree with me um <laughs> but it was and and you know so all those machines you the thing would boot up and you greet it with like a basics like you can instantly type basic code yeah. into the machine and even to load a game like you have to type load in, you know you have to type a couple of lines or whatever to, to get the tape to, to actually load the game. Um, but a lot of my time as a kid was spent typing in programs from magazines to right. create our own things. It's very funny because I, I grew up with, I've spoken about the show before, that I had, I had an Atari 800XL when I was a kid that my grandfather gave me. And it was already many years out of date, but it was that 8-bit home computer sort of culture. And it really seems like in the UK that was a much bigger deal. Like people did that in the US, but it was much more small hobbyist thing. And then with game consoles and sort of with the, you know, the Mac era was when the computer really came into the home. Um, so I had those magazines and I, there were a couple like programs I typed in, but it didn't feel like it was, it was almost like prehistoric computer digital culture in the US as opposed mm-hmm. to being really foundational. Whereas my understanding is in the UK, it's like, when, yeah, people are talking about Commodore and Amiga and, and all these different, uh, those home computers were a much, were, it's, it's just an interesting parallel universe. Yeah, no, it's, and we, there were companies like, there was a company called US Gold that, that would import games from the US mm. as if they were like this very kind of <laughs> like this kind of Hollywood scene. Like, we, yeah, we have our homegrown games and they're all punk and whatever, but like the US gold, these are this, <laughs> the expensive blockbuster video games. Yeah. Um, but yeah, and it's interesting when you look back, because the cool thing about having an Amstrad CPC was, although in the UK, that was not the cool machine. <laughs> so, um, uh, you know, among kids hanging out talking about their home computers all day. They're not. They're not the cool kids anyway. But within those kids, the Amstrad was the least cool. Um, so I had the least cool one. But <laughs> in France and Germany, and I think a lot of Europe, the Amstrad CPC was the dominant machine. Mm. So a lot of French games would only be made for the Amstrad CPC, and the French games are very French. <laughs> like, you know, I... They also, are you smoking cigarettes in the games? What do you... <laughs> I mean, uh, if you Google, like, uh, uh, Cocktail Vision mm. uh, is a foundational... I think they... I'm, I can't remember who they became. They become someone quite important, I think, but they made these games like Captain Blood, which was ported to a lot of different systems, was this game where you toured 
the galaxy and communicated with aliens in an alien language and, and was very psychedelic and trippy. Uh, but they, they also uh, did like the erotic adventures of Emmanuel. Um, there was lots of like, you know, as a kid growing up, French culture was pretty much, uh, it's, it's arty, it's, it's erotic. It's, yeah. it's, it's, you know, it's the history of art. It's, it's all these fun things. Um, but yeah, so the Amstrad CPC did have access to some of the cooler things and like something I'm constantly trying to educate people about with the history of video games is we think that we're on this, this kind of progressive curve where games in the olden days were blippy bloppy Mario jumping on things, heads, space invaders. Mm -hmm. And now we have sophisticated stories and, and, and richness. But if you look, it's, it's far more cyclical than we realize. And like in those early eight bit days, there were people doing very, or attempting to do very interesting experiences that were not, uh, you know, cartoony things shooting each other. Um, and you know, the French were doing lots of interesting story based things. Yeah. Um, and and just to get back to it, the interactive fiction community that we were discussing, like the sophistication of game design within that community is something that like it, it became very sophisticated. But a lot of those messages, a lot of that, like that learning, like did not leave the community. Oh, and so totally. I've, I've seen later, you know, game designers have to reinvent the wheel because, you know, uh, yeah, these these lessons are being learned over and over again. I mean, I remember. Um like part of my the reason I loved the original text games because I guess I would have been in my teens um, was you know Infocom did a series of, of games about being a detective there was one called Suspect mm -hmm. where someone is murdered at a very grown up costume party um, and uh, there was a game by Magnetic Scrolls in the UK called Corruption which was a game that took place uh, in the financial world of London and was about insider trading. And within five minutes, you had seen some cocaine and there was a, a pending divorce happening. And, <laughs> and, and as a teenager, I'm like, ooh, this is like adult subject matter. Yeah. Um, there was a, a French game called The Affair de... Uh, it, was, it was The Affair of Vera Cruz. And it was about uh, a dead prostitute. Wow. And, and I, <laughs> I dug this out like quite recently and it is it's not completely sophisticated <laughs> the way this thing is so like on the back right. of the box it's like in the dirty sexy world of prostitution <laughs> like it's it's you know it's not taking a subtle look into this world but um yeah i would always kind of respond to those kind of bits and then yeah like you say this, this kind of renaissance of interactive um people were trying to explore like what subject matter what types of stories can we tell and and like I say there was a lot of because i don't want to dig too much into uh, auteur theory but there is something when like a text game can be authored by a single human mm -hmm. being conceived of and, and executed by a single human being and so people were able to kind of take deep dives into ideas and because these things were free and cheap in a sense to make um and because as well there is something to text as the medium which allows you to do certain things. Um, there was a lot of experimentation with narrative. And like you say, when uh, when something like Bioshock comes out and everyone's like, oh my God, it's an yeah. unreliable narrator. It's yeah. a twist at yeah. the end of the story. Yeah. Mind blown. You're like, oh yeah, people were figuring out that. Yeah. And what does that mean in an interactive context? Um, so yeah, there's a lot 
People have been doing that for in the '90s in in the yeah in the text game world for sure. That was not a that was my reaction to Bioshock as well. I was like, yeah, cool. I, I have seen it before though, <laughs> like not in a first person shooter, but you know, it's it's not the newest thing in the world. Yeah. So yeah, there's a lot of interesting uh, experimentation in that world, and it's been to now jump massively forward in time. But like like I said, there was. Um, most of us in that world had no expectation that these things were commercial yeah. um, or would, would make money. And there was a little debate because there were people that were like, yeah, but these games were the number one games once. Maybe, <laughs> Maybe that can again. happen again. We text, just need to figure out yeah. better packaging or whatever. Um, and But everyone else was like, stopping silly. No one will ever be able to charge money for a yeah. text game ever again. But then, you know, now, present day, there has been something of a, of a second renaissance Um uh, both in the kind of hobbyist scene with like Twine and stuff, but, yeah. you know, Time Magazine, or, you know, make 80 Days their number one game, which is essentially um, a primarily text-driven game. Um, yeah. And there is there is like an understanding that, hey, we can, like if, it's, if it works to make a game out of text, if it works to explore some of these ideas. Yeah, it's just been a completely different, you know, once people are on their phone, people are reading things on their phone constantly and there are ways to have... You know, it's it ends up being an entirely new form of interaction, um, and it's you know happening 15 years after this community. And even like talking about, but to be very up to the moment, like you look at something like Disco Elysium, mm-hmm. um, and that's very much in the tradition of something like uh, Sunless Skies. Yeah, the, those games where there is a a a visual framing. Like in, in Disco Elysium, you have a character that walks around in this beautifully kind of oil painted world. But 99% of what you're doing in that experience is reading text, yeah, clicking on text. Um, and, you know, there's a version that could have been delivered just as text. But yeah. it's interesting that, that that little spoonful of sugar has allowed these those games to slowly strip away the extraneous stuff and, and get and, back into that. And so many of the developers from that small community and again we're talking you know just folks on little hidey holes on the internet like you know maybe a couple hundred people a couple thousand people uh making and playing these games so many of them have gone on to like work in those in those fields right like uh 80 days is is someone from that community yeah right? I think, uh, uh, john who's one of the founders john ingle yeah he did yeah. um some like really intensely hard <laughs> games that I couldn't get my head around. I, I actually beat one of them. Uh, the, these games were, uh, I beat the Muldoon Legacy in college. But yeah, I loved his, I loved his games. And then he, yeah, he went on to do. Yeah, he uh, did a, a game called Make It Good, which was like a real attempt to figure out how do you make a cool detective mm-hmm. story. It's like a very noir thing. Yeah, he did some other ones that uh, that I did play to completion that had some good, good twists. Well, let's talk about. Like so, you're in uh, you're in university. You made Isle, right? You're you're mm-hmm. da- you're dabbling in this hobbyist community uh, of game makers. How does that? Uh... And by the way, I'm, I'm always struck by the fact that I was also hanging out in the community, but I never made a game, <laughs> right? Like, and, and uh, how? It's, it's actually a question I'd like to ask. Like. Um, again, you know, I was playing the games, I was reading the message boards, I had downloaded the development tools, I actually knew enough programming mm-hmm. to like compile, you know, a little a little test game, a little hello world game for myself, right? But I never had the step of going like, oh, here's an idea for something I would like to do. Did you do the first, did you do my apartment? game what everyone always ends up doing is the first thing is you, <laughs> you, you create your apartment or whatever 
as a game uh, and some people end up releasing them. <laughs> Everyone's like, this is probably fun for you, but... Uh, yeah, well, you're just modeling the world. I don't think I did that yeah. specifically, but I did make a little, you know, try, try to make a, make a little thing myself. But then I felt, I never felt that I had the core of an idea for what an interesting game would be mm-hmm. such that I then went on and developed it, et cetera, right? Um, why do you feel that you did? Like, what what was that like to have that moment, you know? So I think I, so going back to the, the home computer thing, uh, so from those early days with a computer, I was typing these other programs in and I would like tweak them. So like, uh, you know, I, I remember typing in a program that was to teach you your multiplication tables. And I changed it from being uh, you getting an apple whenever you got the right answer to being a giant monster that was going to eat this character on a, a treadmill that was the conveyor belt that was moving towards the monster. And, and if every time you got a sum wrong, you got closer, which my brothers found hugely entertaining. Hmm. So I was kind of doing these remixes. And then that graduated to making little games for my friends um and and we would share them amongst each other and and they were usually uh designed to uh towards the end like mostly insult each other um so we it was this very weird little ecosystem like in our school the computer lab um when i got to um like high school uh there was like there was there was the one kid in the the senior year who uh was like the rock star he had created this turn-based strategy thing that everyone looked up to and was playing on the computers over lunchtime or whatever um so every now and then like a little thing would blow up and we'd all do copies of it so mm. we'd do our version of it you had a um, little scene there was like yeah. a little scene um there was uh <laughs> there was a, a game someone invented where you, it was a two-player game and Maybe I invented this and then everyone else did better versions and I resented them for it. But like you, you, you moved characters around and if you got your character's bottom to hit the top of the other character, you scored a point. So you were kind of, I guess it was it was like uh, this kind of uh, wrestling, a very very limited kind of yeah. wrestling type game. Um, but then other people drew better sprites and, and theirs were the popular ones. Um, and then I think one of the most, there was a kid it was a kid, Anthony something, and, and his nickname was Boggy. And so then someone did a version <laughs> where the sprite was him. And like, I don't know if that was necessarily a nice thing to do, but that version became very popular. <laughs> but then we were doing, uh, t- we, we all would write our own engines as well. Like there was, you know, you, you and, and we all had pretend company names. Um, <laughs> right. Mine was terrible. My, my pretend company name was, because these games were written in basic, was Basic Advantage TM. I was like going very corporate. It was That's like very slick. very corporate. Um, what a boring name I for know, a kid to come up with. just disgustingly boring. Um, <laughs> but we would write, uh, so we would, we all created our own text adventure engines, right? Um, and, and I had like, friends who were very good at having the sophisticated parser tech, and I didn't have any of that. Um, but these, these games evolved to um, primarily they would be the adventures um, of like so we would write a game so i had a friend alex and so i'd write a series of games about alex attempting to get laid that would be like the quest of the game and then everything he tried to do would end in disaster and and it was kind of insult humor (laughs) the game but there was something perverse about alex having to sit down and then play it 
um, yeah. and play this pathetic version of himself. Um, <laughs> so like I was making all these and then on the side I was trying to do cleverer things, but I was saying to someone else the other day, like the, the, the very first things I was writing, you know, I'd go on to write bad novels and, and things, but like as soon as I was had the urge to sit and write things creatively, I was doing that in some cases in these text games. So that you know i that was always like a simultaneous mm -hmm. thing um so i think then when uh i went to university um there was i think it was around this time i could be wrong but um activision uh re-released all of the infocom games in like yeah. a giant box set yeah um, which was and and you know, I can't remember how much it cost, but it was like the most incredible value to yeah. these games. And and you could, I guess, uh, illegally procure them. But it that kind of I think was partly what revitalized and, and created some of this this renewal right. of interest in that era. Um, so I think when I discovered the text games online, um, particularly uh, this, uh, the guy Graham Nelson uh, created these tools in form which allowed you to make your versions of Infocom games. Um, like that, um, it all made sense. And I'd already written my own bad text games. So then seeing these tools and being like, wow, these are far more sophisticated. You can use them to write good ones. And, you know, and, and, and I'm writing bad novels and, and I was doing, like I was, I was studying uh, for my sense physics when I started at university, but I wasn't particularly interested in physics. <laughs> yeah, it was something that- It doesn't sound like you're interested. It was something that- uh, I'd been encouraged to do by, by uh, you know, my school and my family. They're like, "Oh, yeah, no, you're very bright. Go and do physics." Um, so, I, in my spare time, I was painting and exhibiting paintings, and I was involved in the the, the theatre scene yeah. at, at university and doing all these things. So, um, just doing lots of fun, creative things was kind of what I did to fill my time. And yeah, I was just really taken with that interactive fiction scene like that was very exciting um and i think like you're saying there was it was such a, a small community and i wasn't really a hugely active participant like there were some people that like you say were very heavily involved in On critiquing other things yeah. um but there was a level of of one-upmanship almost i think because people were doing really cool things and mm -hmm. because people were were doing things you hadn't seen before like with with a, an amount of regularity like a, there was a uh yeah there was an element of wanting to compete in that and and do some cool things um so i did i remember i did i can't remember what, what i did them in i did like a little joke game for a competition that i publicly released like every now and then there'd be these little competitions uh this one was um for people to make a game based on the chicken crossing the road joke. Mm -hmm. um, and I did a little game for that, which was kind of silly. And then I did a competition game. So another big part of this scene was that every year there is an annual competition. Yeah. And that is where 80% of the interesting games get released because that gets the most attention and, mm -hmm. and discussion. And and that competition still goes on now. I think. Yeah, and it's, I think it's the winners are released a month bigger or two ago. and bigger because because there's all sorts of twine stuff. Um, yeah, there's, there's yeah, I, yeah. There's too much stuff for me to play anymore. I used to yeah, it used to be 
the competition games would come out and you would sit and just play them all. Yeah. Uh, and now, I'm, I w- now I wait to see what everyone else thinks and then I play the ones that everyone tells me are good. <laughs> yeah, well, that's the advantage of the, uh, the competition comes out. You play number one. Yeah. Uh, this one won, so what What was it? Yeah. yeah. So I did a, a, a competition game and I remember I, and it, it wasn't a very good game, um, but I remember like the week before the competition, like my hard drive died or something uh, and I had to rebuild this thing from scratch very quickly. Wow. So I kind of entered this thing that, uh, was oh, it was okay, um, but it was slightly broken, and uh, it was one of these games. Like I, one of the things I loved about text games was, um, like one of the key verbs in a text game is examine, right? Mm-hmm. So, so it will say you are in a you're in a recording studio with Adam. Um, there are plush seats around uh, and a small box off to the side. So you're like, oh examine box and then it'll yeah. say oh the box has an ornate keyhole so then you're like oh ooh, there's something interesting here yeah um open box or whatever um but that uh that process of of slowly zooming in on things slowly filling out the details mm-hmm. through your exploratory kind of commands was something i liked and and so i made this game called the city i think that the whole thing revolved around that of of kind of digging into scenery detail and continuing to look until you found something important and it also um i was completely riffing on there was a, an infocom game sorcerer i think was the one where uh, there was a piece of time travel in the game mm-hmm. and you see yourself from i remember this the future of the post i can remember but basically you whatever you type you then later see yourself performing yeah. those actions, but it was like it felt magical. And on a level, obviously, it's not that magical because the game is just literally recording the things you did and then yeah. rewriting those in the third you, person. You're playing the game, you're going north, east, drop that, get that. And then eventually, you go back in time and turn by turn, you watch yourself do the same things again. I imagine there's some kind of puzzle where you have to coordinate with, believe, your, yeah. with your past self. But, but I remember thinking that was really cool. Um, and so the premise of this this bad competition game was uh, it was very uh, um, kind of matrixy, right? You, you wake up in a room, you're amnesiac, which is the biggest cliche in video games. Um, and you would do a bunch of things and ultimately all that's left for you to do is to eat this pill and then you fall asleep and wake up and you're in the same room again but now there's a video cassette and if you plug the video cassette in on tv you see a recording of everything you just did Mm. and the so the twist is to think if this is being recorded there must be a camera somewhere and then kind of figuring out where the camera is Mm. and and that allows you to escape and um but it was not very well implemented. Um, <laughs> and so actually like having put that out publicly and, and had people be like, oh, this is pretty cool. And then some people would be like, it's not that great. Um, led me to want, and I, fe- I almost felt like I was working too much within the tradition of there's a puzzle, but it's also mm-hmm. trying to be a bit artistic because there's this weird surreal atmosphere going on and I'm, it had some very pretentious things um, in the ending, I think, um, about what this thing meant metaphorically. Um, that, I think, compelled me to then want to go and make, not publicly safe face, but like, I want to now put something out which is cooler, 
than the little right. competition game I made, and I want it to uh, be um, not conceived of as like, oh, the competition's in three months. I'm going to come up with a neat competition game. Yeah. And I'm like, okay, I just want to actually, now I've made a couple of things and I've got that out of the way. Like, I want to go and do something interesting. And that was kind of where this I went is, with Isle. This is, what a, this is what a scene does, you know? Uh, I remember reading, David Byrne wrote a book called On Music where he sort of defined what a scene is. And it's, uh, I don't remember exactly all the definition, but it's like you got a bunch of people doing work. There's a place where they all come to see each other's work regularly, which for him was like Friday night at CBGB, but for you is like the the interactive fiction competition, right? And way then, cooler, way cooler. Scene. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think I think much cooler to be uploading uh, files to a FTP server yeah. than to be at CBGB. Who wants yeah. to go there? Uh, but yeah, and then and then I think getting feedback and then wanting to impress the other artists, mm-hmm. I think, is a big part of it. Um, and I've experienced that in my life and doing open mics in New York City mm-hmm. and stand-up comedy. I want to impress the other comics, et cetera. And sounds like that's the same thing that happened to you, that you were like, you get a little bit of that feedback and it sort of intoxicates you and you want to you wanna improve from there. And you want to... Uh, well, uh, we got to take a really quick break, uh, but I, after we come back, I want to find out how you came to make the games that you are more widely known for. We'll be right back with more Sam Barlow. Okay, we're back with Sam Barlow. Um, first of all, I just want to say, as we're talking, it it is very cool for me to meet you because the interesting thing about that interactive fiction community is that it was all these, like, uh, the same thing that happened where that community was looking back at the Infocom games, at these, like, famous text adventure games, uh, as, like, you know, they were like the Romans among the Greek ruins, you know, saying, <laughs> like, what was this great world that was here? Let's try to rebuild it and do the same thing, right? We're such fans of that, right? Um, that community itself, that hobbyist community, now has its own mystique for uh, for people who played the games like me. I just saw there's a guy doing a blog called uh, The Digital Antiquarian or something oh, like that. It's like the best blog. Yeah, I, I just found out. I mean, I, I'm late to it, but he oh just wrote there's a, a whole... There's a lot of catching up you have to do. Yeah, he re- just, he's writing essays about like the history of that community and like how it changed and like you know the, the movements it went through that is so fascinating. And also... It must be somewhat opaque for people who didn't actually play those games, but it, but is still like it's like this weird little big bang of game design that only a certain number of people were there to experience, but was like really profoundly impactful on me and on I think a lot of other people who who played those games. Um, and then so many of you went off to like do games that are more well known or to work in the in the games industry. Um, so tell me how you came to uh, the the games that you're you know sort of widely known for for uh, her story and and your new game telling lies. So um, it was not a direct route. <laughs> um, so even when I was um, so when I'm making these games at home on my eight bit computer and then when I'm 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 there doing Isle. Um, these were all still very much in my head hobbyist things like this was and again like that interactive fiction community was under no illusion that that this was a commercial thing I still didn't 100% realize you could have a job making video games like which is weird because a lot of that kind of 80s scene in England the word the occasional rock star 
programmers like there were the Oliver twins in the UK who, who made this horrendous character called Dizzy and their name would be on the box. Um, there were like a couple of name video game makers that we kind of all knew of as being um, these, you know, the, the rock stars of this world. And But I never really thought that's a thing to aspire to or that you could go do. Um, so I was, yeah, I got on with finishing my degree having finished my degree didn't really know what i wanted to do i had at some point switched from physics to math um because i when i'd been pitched physics i didn't realize how much time i'd have to spend in a lab looking <laughs> at an oscilloscope i was like i was like oh they want me to go do physics i'm like well you know stephen hawking like i'm going to discover the the facts like the origins of the universe yeah this is cool stuff like stephen could, hawking just sits around and thinks man yeah i'm going to get to do this stuff. I'm going to solve all the problems of the universe. And then you show up and it is sat in a room with an oscilloscope <laughs> whilst people speak about last night's Star Trek or whatever. And I'm like, this is not fun. Um, and then everyone I knew doing like arts degrees never had to do anything. Like, they would be like, I got to, like, uh, you know, I met my wife at university and she was doing uh, theater in English and she would have like two hours of tuition a week yeah. or something and then just have to read some books. Um, so I, I I decided to switch to math because uh, that uh, was more interesting to me, uh, and uh, but I ended up graduating with this degree in math, and I was like, well, I don't want to work in finance or be in an actuary or anything, and I don't want to do a PhD in math. Um, so I wasn't really sure what I wanted to do, and uh, got a job out here in the states working for a tech company that. It was like a thing uh, where there'd be these job fairs at um, at university. So of an evening, an employer would come in and they would give you free booze and free food if you would sit and listen to their <laughs> presentation, which to a student was was great. Like you would show up at these things, get your, your, your evening's meal, and then drink as much of the free alcohol as you could. <laughs> um, and one of these was this strange tech company uh, from uh, Washington D.C. and they they were doing stuff to do with data uh, and databases, but it was all very sci-fi. Like was the the pitch. So the guy running it was at that point the richest man in the world under forty, because he owned the majority of stock in this company that had become a huge thing. Um, and he was very eccentric. He, he was kind of the in the kind of Elon Musk school of like, oh, I've got this amazing idea that will change things. So he was always talking about putting computer chips in people's heads and doing all these things. Um, and uh, they were offering a very, very aggressive wage. And I remember I interviewed with them and then they sent me like a, a case of champagne the next day from Harrods. And so it was all, I was like, if I'm going to do something, I guess. Yeah. It sounds fun to go to America and work you for an eccentric genius. They sent you a case of champagne, <laughs> yeah. not a bottle of champagne, but yeah. A well, case. it was well, it was like there was a whole. It was a thing from Harrods, you know, like yeah. Harrods, the store in England. It was like a, a, a luxury, a gift box, big thing with stuff in it and champagne and wow. you know, bits and pieces. Um, All right, yeah. I mean, sure, take that job, man. If they're going yeah. after you like that, no one's ever sent me a case of champagne. But I th yeah, for me, yeah. Primarily, it was like oh. It's it's a weird tech company and and the guy running it's very eccentric. So 
maybe that will be more interesting than mm-hmm. any of the other obvious jobs I could do. Um, so I went out to the States and was doing that job whilst actually I was, I think, working on some kind of text, some stupidly ambitious text game things that never came to anything. Um, did that for a year and a bit and that company, um, and I believe, I think I can, this, this is the, this, I can legally say this, but they, they had some issues with how they had filed their revenue with the SEC. <laughs> um, so the reason this guy was so wealthy was that this, this company was like, you know, showing this exponential growth year on year. Um, and it turns out some of that exponential growth was because of how they had filed. It's a scam company. Revenue. So there was, it was not a scam. Uh, the, <laughs> oh, okay. The, it was allegedly, it was a gray area uh, <laughs> between transitioning from being a, a software business into a consulting business. Okay. And you, you bank revenue differently. Got um, it. But uh, at that time, the, the, there was the larger company. Um, and this, like, this was good training for me as a game designer. Like, their primary business um this might be the most boring digression you've ever had uh, was <laughs> was big databases like uh-huh. at that time they were the only company that could do i believe a terabyte database mm. so if you were a, a grocery store or you were a bank you used this company and and when you did the training they gave you access to a i believe maybe a walmart something like a walmart database in which you had like millions of uh, you know uh, store card transactions, mm-hmm. and th- we learned how to use the tools to do all the clever things. Where you go, ha! Huh, turns out uh, there is an affinity between diapers and beer because first-time dads. Ah. So that's when supermarkets started putting diapers and beer next to each other because, yeah, they could sell more of both and. Um, and, and all that stuff. But that was actually fascinating for me to, you know, coming from having these interests in slightly more avant-garde storytelling and seeing people's lives enumerated as their purchases ah. and making these links and stuff. Um, that does connect to your games in a way because you're – well, that's that's interesting because her story and telling lies are – they're. They're database search games, right? That's yeah. the fundamental action is you're searching a database of, of video clips. For those who haven't played, I might as well just, just say I'm talking about like I, the uh, fundamental thing you're doing in both of those games is there's a database of clips. You can search the dialogue in the clip so you look for certain words um, and then you can watch the clip randomly and there's uh, a date and a time and so you sort of piece together the story by watching these clips, which is I have so many questions about how you came to that uh, narrative structure <laughs> because I think it's so cool. But first, let's get yeah. to so tell I'm, me how you got to the yeah, point of we're making doing those databases. Games. And uh, uh, but the the company had like a uh, the the funky subsidiary that was doing all the dot com stuff. That was actually, in retrospect, everything that's wrong with the world now. They were like tr- aiming for that ten years ago. So like before Facebook, they were like, <laughs> "Hey, wouldn't it be cool if people could could socially communicate?" Right. With their groups, what their if social we forced groups, forced people to come to our website to talk to their mom. Yeah, that was <laughs> yeah, that was that was exactly the things they were trying to do. Um, and uh, I was put into that group, which was the one everyone wanted to be in because it was like the sexy one and, and was going to have all this huge growth and stuff. But when they had these financial issues uh, to show the market that 
they were a reliable, solid company, they basically jettisoned the funky bit and kept the thing that was banks and supermarkets and stuff. So I found myself um, without a job and I did another little bit of work uh, to keep my visa going that was uh, at another tech company, um, but the point where we'd moved to, I think, the third office and the checks, the, the wage checks were bouncing. It was a little bit too startup. Um, I remember we, we were told, like, if the landlord from the previous office comes outside, do not let him in to the new office. Just pretend <laughs> no one's here. Um, so at that point, and, and uh, my girlfriend, now my wife, was still back in the UK. Um, so I felt like um, I should head back to the UK rather than uh, look for another uh, interesting tech job over uh, in the States. Uh, so I kind of returned to the UK and was trying to figure out what I could do and was in this this beautifully awkward position between uh, being not a graduate hire but also not having any useful experience in anything <laughs> other than working for a weird tech company. Um, so I was bouncing around trying to find work and then I had a friend who actually had ended up as a programmer in a video games company mm. and he knew that I did art. So he was like, well, why don't you be a video game artist? So I was like, okay. And I downloaded cracked copies of Maya and all the different <laughs> art packages, taught myself those packages very quickly and put together a, a portfolio of like 3D models and yeah. textures and things, um, which luckily was just before, like I think there's a point where everything you do on the internet is is now archived somewhere, right? And this, right. this luckily happened just before... That. So this no longer exists on the internet, this hideous portfolio of weird game art that I put out there. Um, so that led to me getting a job as a games artist uh, for a studio called Climax, and I was working on the Serious Sam game ah. for the GameCube, uh, but very quickly was moved into the design team because I wouldn't shut up with my opinions. <laughs> and then, About how the game should work. Yeah, and soon after that, was promoted to lead designer because I still wouldn't shut up. And they were like, maybe, maybe if we make him the lead designer, <laughs> he won't have anyone to to talk to. He'll, he'll just talk to himself as I am. Um, and so we made, uh, we made Serious Sam for the GameCube, uh, which, um, and a lot of these games I was working on, like, again, there was a, I don't, I don't think I was aware of this disconnect, but, I was now making video games professionally, but I wasn't necessarily thinking of them as the same thing as Isle and that stuff. Like mm -hmm. like that that interest in interactive storytelling and Isle and, and that community was a thing. And then this was a day job where I was making serious sound for the GameCube and I was figuring out like huh. what is the, the the gameplay here? Uh you know, reverse engineering that figuring out oh it's kind of like contra or whatever like what's the the core thing how does the controls work doing some level design um there was like and obviously the the narrative in serious sam is is very thin um <laughs> if people are not aware of serious sam it's it's a croatian i believe croatian they're called like crow team maybe yeah you know, yeah um, yeah was was the original developer and uh, it was basically a doom clone of sorts but um had some some kind of madcap surreal 
character design. So you were traveling through ancient history, fighting aliens, and and they had these cool enemies that were uh, humans with their heads chopped off and their hands replaced with bombs. <laughs> and these creatures would come from from like hundreds of meters away, but you'd hear their scream because they constantly screamed, even though they had no heads. <laughs> um, and or they would they would essentially like these little suicide bomber characters they would basically run and then if they collided with you they'd explode and and you'd die so they were a very panic inducing enemy and these were actually very well crafted games in terms of the enemy balance and stuff like as a shoot 'em up goes but the story was that there's a guy called Sam who is a muscular guy in a tight white t-shirt who i guess is accidentally sent i i worked on it i'm not even sure like what the premise was he's just a dude and he's sent back in time and he wisecracks like all video game protagonists back then had yeah. to um so you made that game and what did i do next then i worked on maybe after that i made this game called crusty demons which um it was a publisher and they were buying up properties and they'd noticed that Jackass was big. Okay. Jackass was a big hit. I believe they actually bought the license for Jackass. But then they were looking for similar things and uh, there is a group of motocross athletes, um, some of them, some of the the highest level of motocross athletes, like they, the winners of the X Games or, or whatever. And But they had this collective, I guess, called the Krusty Demons. They would do these videos that were... 50% like cool bike stunts and 50% dumb skits. So the company sees this and they're like, oh, it kind of has some of the jackass mm-hmm. qualities. Um, but there's also the the extreme sports thing and the Tony Hawk's games are a big hit. Mm-hmm. So, oh, this is going to be gold. So we were given that to make partly because the studio I was working for had a sister studio in a different city that made very good bike games. Mm. So they were like, oh, let's give it to the bike people because there's bikes <laughs> in it. But we were a group of people. You were not the bike studio. Had no love for bikes. <laughs> uh, in fact, I remember there was one team member who liked the Tony Hawks games and the rest of us didn't. Oh, wow. And so with their making a, a, a trick, also, stunt oh, trick kind of game. I can tell because you called him Tony Hawks and his name is Tony Hawk. So I can tell you're yeah. not a fan of the guy, <laughs> or at least of his game. <laughs> I yeah, I know of him through the games, and they're often pluralized. Uh, yeah, so I didn't play those. I didn't play those games yeah. either. Yeah, there I tried. Like I'm very diligent as, mm-hmm. a, as a game designer, so I was like, okay, I'm going to figure out the mindset of how these games work. But I just couldn't. I didn't have the skill set. Mm-hmm. And they're all about, uh, as is skating, I believe, uh, like hitting a perfect line of tricks, like just just yeah. comboing. They were like one of the first sports games to, to come up with this idea of like comboing and, and yeah. having some level of improvisational freedom to create the perfect trick. And they're line. very and they're very technique based. Like it's not like you're it's not power fantasy where you're just getting better guns. It's like you actually need to get good at yeah. it. And that was as far as I got. I couldn't get good. So yeah. I was like, this is a game about a guy who just keeps falling off a skateboard. Um, <laughs> so we we made that game and uh like it's it's funny when you look at certain, you know, the number of video games that are cancelled or that don't come out that that you feel like they should have done, the fact that that game Krusty Demons did eventually make it onto shelves is is in its own way a disgrace. Hmm. Um, <laughs> but uh, so you're working on these games that you you don't have that much of a connection to. <laughs> and that well, I mean, of... it's funny though because like as a job, 
like I gave it my all and was very concerned with making these things good. Yeah. Um, and, and it's weird because I speak to a lot of people that it used to be traditional that it's, to work in games, you kind of came up through working on these license thing through the mm -hmm. kids' games. Um, and actually, like some of the the harder work and some of the better gelled teams were in that period because if you only have six months to go out and make a thing, you everyone was working very hard and trying to make, knowing that people would actually have to play this thing. Like at the end of the day, you want to make it good. You don't want to make it a, a sucky game. Um, and usually it's the forces outside that compel you to make a sucky game. Um, but I remember the the key point on, on the Krusty Demons of Dirt came when we did a tour of, of focus groups in the States um, to show the, the version we had of the game and see what kids thought of it. And what became apparent every city we'd travel to and sit behind the, you know, the one-way mirror um, was none of these kids had heard of the Krusty Demons. And <laughs> this became more and more terrifying for the execs that were with me. <laughs> Every, like you could see them answering calls from their boss, like, how's it going with the Krusty Demons focus groups? And they're like, oh, it's going okay, boss. Like, no one's heard of this thing. Like, we've, we've got this license that is not going to be the next jackass. Um, and... Towards that's the end really of this, funny fuck up yeah. for for executives. Oh yeah, this thing is big. Oh wait, actually, it's not big. And and not only did kids not know of it, they got angry at how because the 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 name Krusty Demons like is evocative of various things. Um, it sounds like uh, honestly it reminds me of it sounds like Doom or something like that. It sounds like I'm going to shoot demons. Well, I think it was the Krusty. The kids yeah. responded to the Krusty, so they were like, "Is this?" Yeah, they they had all sorts of ideas. Is it I a remember, sandwich based game? <laughs> they were like this. I remember there was one kid, and he thought like, "Is this a game about magical homeless people?" Was his take <laughs> on it. Um, but it was fun because when you do these focus groups, and the publisher wants to speak to teenage boys, um, but you're you're doing the focus groups during the week, um, you tend to get selected a group of of people who are frequently stoned. Um, <laughs> And, and showing up and some of these sessions would get quite boisterous and i remember like one of the kids getting up coming over to the glass and being like your game sucks your game sucks and getting a chant out of the other kids your game sucks that's, that's, that is the so worst that's case scenario yeah. for a focus group is they rebel and start chanting yeah. that yeah. the game sucks and yeah and he's like who are the the crusty demons, man. This thing, and, and and so I look over at the suit, and he's just there, like, you know, do I do I go home? Do I even go home to my family? Like, is this it for me? Um, and at some point, I suggest to him, I was like, maybe we should change the thing we're showing them because at that point, it was like a Tony Hawksy type game. And one of the things they did was after the kids said they didn't know who these people were, uh, they started showing them the videos and saying, well, do you like the thing they do? And generally, to a T, they were like, oh, it's okay, I guess I like the bit where people fall off bikes and get hurt. Mm -hmm. Like, I like the dumb stuff. So I was like, hey, how about we change the game and just, and this is like, <laughs> yeah, this is not me as an artist. I'm like, these teenage boys who are stoned seem to really like the idea of dumb stuff and mm -hmm. pain. And I was like, why don't we just make the game about the dumb stuff 
and and all the violence and pain, like everything that everyone thinks video games are. Let's right. just do that. Let's give right. it. Um, and so we put together a pitch that we then, for the last two focus sessions, gave them a very different pitch um, that was was all about that stuff. And the, they were like, yeah, okay, yeah, change the name, but I guess this thing's okay. So then we went back <laughs> and started making the game done. And actually the, the moment of genius was we had this coder um, – who was was like, you know, next level coder? Um, he left and went to like work at CERN or something after this. Like, like he did something far more worthwhile, I think. But um, he had, in his spare time, created a ragdoll system, and this was like before. Like every game now is full of ragdoll. Yeah. Like you know, so that's when, when the, the 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 model goes limp and it just flops around. Yeah, it's the, the physical modeling of the human body, which is very useful for for things falling over or mm -hmm. exploding or whatever. Um, and he was like, oh, I've got this ragdoll thing. Maybe it'd be good for when the person crashes the bike. We put this thing in and we realized very quickly, everyone on the team was having so much fun crashing. Yeah. Like, and, and just seeing what happened to the bodies. Then we're yeah. like, that's, we're like, that's the game. Yeah. So I then came up, the premise was that actually all these famous extreme sports riders had died in a stunt gone wrong. And uh, for some reason, to get their souls back, they they they, they have they do a deal with the devil. The devil uh, allows them to come back to life, but they have to do stuff. Uh, a checklist he's given them, which usually involves like uh, throwing your body two thousand feet, uh, leaving the longest blood trail. All right. Uh, uh, we started putting these little targets in levels that could only be smashed by uh, your body uh, being your body. So you would deliberately crash in such a way as. To, and yeah. it just became like this fun, dumb, violent physics yeah. sandbox. That, now that sounds like a blast. Yeah, yeah, and and that was the game. But it was, it was, it was, it was shoddy. Um, it it got IGN Xbox's Game of the Month. Um, wow. But it should be noted that this was when the Xbox 360 was was out. So oh, this was too like late. no one's putting anything out. But they were like, this game is so dumb uh, that it has to be celebrated. Um, Great. So we made that, uh, and that was. The first time I think I did voice directing mm. <laughs> for this random game, um, and I wrote, going, I wrote the I wrote the the dialogue as well. Which please do not, anyone listening to this do not Google Krusty Demons and watch any They're of that dialogue. They're gonna do that now. I I think we I think I'm okay. I don't think there's that much footage of this game. Okay, online, so I think we're good. Um, You're not proud of it. Like I say, I I'm proud of. Is what yeah all these games you're proud that we shipped a thing like this team we got put on notice that we would be made redundant because the the company funding the game went bust a couple of times and they kept reassigning the rights to different companies um we were given notice the whole team was going to be made redundant and we would find out if we would have jobs or not on the 24th of December. Wow. <laughs> like, this is a team that's, like, heading into Christmas, hanging out with their family, like, I wonder if we'll have a job next wow. year. Wow. So, you know, you, you, so you, you are very proud of the that kind of teamwork and, and, yeah. and how things work and, and the innovative stuff we did. Like, you should I think, be proud that game came out at all if you're all told, hey, by yeah. the way, you're all going to be fired on Christmas Eve. Yeah. <laughs> it's, it's good. It's it's fun working in video games. Um, but, you know, it was, it was a fun thing. And I think... Uh, I don't think it in any way influenced any other games. You could pretend that subsequent uh, <laughs> games like Burnout and 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 things and some of that gameplay uh, it, it had a precedent for that, but um, I don't think 
It did. Um, <laughs> so, so after that horrible, so after that, or that wild experience, yeah. How did you? I'll speed. I'll speed up. So I'll get <laughs> forever. <laughs> so after that, we did uh, a licensed game uh, tying in with the Nicolas Cage Ghost Rider movie. Mm-hmm. And again, we got that game because they were like, Ghost Rider rides a bike. <laughs> You guys do bike games. You Did just made a bike game. Did they also think that was a big movie? Because it was not oh, in well, my memory. I mean, I did, uh, so part of the interesting story with that game uh, was funded by Majesco. So Majesco was a, a, a medium player in video games, but they had the license to sell the Pokemon cartoon Game Boy cartridges. Right. Okay. So when Pokemon was huge, first huge here, and Netflix didn't exist. If you were a kid and you wanted to watch the Pokemon cartoon whenever you wanted, and, and private, they, they released it on cartridges. They released yeah, the cartoon you, you on had cartridges. cartridges for your Game Boy or Game Boy Advance, I guess, yeah, Game that Boy you Advance. plugged in, and and it contained like a couple of episodes of the show or something. I believe. It, yeah, I only le- recently learned about this and, kind of crazy transitional technology, and it was huge for obvious reasons. And so they made a bunch of cash, and they said, "Well, we're going to use this cash to become a major player in the video games world." So let's let's build our portfolio. So they uh, started developing uh, The Darkness, which is actually a good game, um, by Starbreeze. Um, they kicked off a sci-fi trilogy that was written by Orson Scott Card wow. called Advent Rising, which was going to be their Halo. Wow. And... They bought the rights to what at that time was going to be the big summer blockbuster from Sony, Ghost Rider. <laughs> right. And starting Nicolas um, Cage. So we started. We started working on Ghost Rider, and um, you know the the what they wanted and what Marvel wanted, and this was like Marvel pre the thing that Marvel is now. Mm-hmm. But they still obviously took their IP very seriously. We're like, well, it can't be the can't be just a dumb movie tie-in. It can't be the story of the film. Uh, it should be its own story, and it should explore the mythology of Ghost Rider. So me being, taking my job seriously, I read every single Ghost Rider comic, um, absorbed the entire <laughs> canon of Ghost Rider um, to help put this thing together. Um, I, at this point, I'd read the screenplay and was like, is this the thing they're actually filming? <laughs> and they were like, yeah, yeah, but you know, you have to know how to read a screenplay. Like, it's going to look like it, you know, th- this will be great. You don't um, need to know how to read a screenplay. Yeah, I'm like, you just okay, read it, and yeah. if it works, it works. Yeah. Um, <laughs> Screenplays are written for the dumbest people on the planet to be able to read them and exactly. go and understand. Um, and uh, they assigned a couple of Marvel writers to work with us on it. Um, we had, uh, and both... Tremendous writers, uh, Jimmy Palmiotti and Garth Ennis. Um, I think Jimmy went on to work on the the good Batman games, mm. and, and obviously uh, uh, Garth continues to do his thing in comics. And I think Garth had just written like a uh, I don't really know how comics work, but like he had written a, a, a reboot of Ghost Rider or like a one off Ghost Rider series. So I remember our first call where I, I'm sat there having absorbed the entire history of Ghost Rider and feel like I understand the true essence of this character. And, um, and we start talking, and, and, and Garth Ennis is like, oh, I never read any of those old ones. He's like, it's a dude with a flaming head. Like, what? he's a biker with a flaming skull. Like, what, what is there to know? Right. So I'm like, okay. Um, but uh, we had like a fun back and forth because the number one priority we were given as a developer was, uh, number two, this should be a good game, or as good as you can get it. 
but number one, it has to be teen rated. Wow. Like, above all else, because if it's not teen rated, Walmart will not stock it. If it's not in Walmart, no one will buy this movie license game. Right. Um, so we were, and, and we were struggling because a lot of the rules in video games are slightly more onerous than in movies. Hmm. And if you have any violent act which could conceivably be reproduced in the real world, that is a no-no for a teen game. So we had a human-esque character hitting yeah. people with a chain and fighting other humanoid characters. That is a no-no. So you have to make them into mystical demons and, and, and mess around and stuff. Oh, okay. So, But we were constantly trying to make sure we hit this rating. And then we would get scripts back <laughs> from uh, from Jimmy and Garth. And I think, I think the, having read a little bit of Garth's stuff, like he has a very dark imagination. Mm-hmm. So we'd get stuff back. And there's this character in Ghost Rider called the Caretaker who uh, is like an old cowboy mentor character. I don't know Ghost Rider, so. Oh, you should check out the movie. It's excellent. <laughs> <laughs> um, and and he, we would get sent back these script pages and it'd be like, the demons drag Caretaker to the church. They rip off the steeple and use it to bugger him. <laughs> <laughs> And That's a dark imagination. Yeah, yeah, we'd be like, guys, teen rating, <laughs> teen rating. Try again, That's, and and you know, might even go past M. And yeah, and I mean, in fairness, uh, I think at that point in time, if you're uh, successful Marvel writers and you're asked to come and help out on a video game, it's not your biggest priority. Yeah, and I remember, yeah, he, he was like, screw all this PC nonsense. Like yeah. Ghost Rider is this primal thing, and we're like, yeah, but. We got to get paid. Get <laughs> um, so that went on for a bit, and then the 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 highlight of the project was uh, when, despite all the Game Boy money, the Game Boy money ran out. I guess, and Majesco realized that their their master plan was not necessarily going to work, and, and was a ways off. So they started. Uh, I think actually, maybe Advent Rising had come out the first one, and not done great. Um, they tried to sell their stuff off, and they did like the the subprime mortgage thing of. Uh, they went to 2K and said, uh, would you like the darkness, which is looking like an incredible next-gen thing? Um, oh, you have to take it with Ghost Rider. <laughs> this <laughs> this, this great package. Yeah, both. Um, they they did that deal, so we then transferred to 2K. Um, or is it Take-Two? I don't know. There's, there's like a whole bunch of different names around that company. And um, the week after they had sold it, and allegedly they did not know this, there were questions. Um, the week after they sold it, uh, Sony announced that Ghost Rider was now moving from the summer blockbuster slot to February, which until that point, <laughs> no action movie had ever launched in February. This was not. Oh, my God. So suddenly we found our budget being super scaled down uh, where we had uh, animated cutscenes. We were told to replace them with static comic book images. Uh, we we had the characters of Blade and Wolverine in it because they're like part of the Ghost Rider story. Like okay, whole, uh, that was like my first time I realized that, that comic... makes sense. They're friends of Ghost Rider. Yeah, yeah sure. it was the, the first time I realized that in comic books, like all the characters hang out. Like, yeah, the, the whole we now understand the the cinematic universe thing. Like I didn't realize that was a thing. Um, but I was like, oh, I guess Blade and Wolverine and all these people hang yeah. out. Um, and then we were asked to remove those characters. So there were points. There was a there was a cut scene in the game where Ghost Rider driving through the desert and he uh, bumps into Wolverine and they hang out and he lights Wolverine's cigar with his flame and then they go into a bar and they fight a bunch of demons and have and and, and say something I can't remember. 
and uh, we were told, oh, you have to remove Wolverine from the game, but we haven't got any money to do that cleanly. So in the game, Ghost Rider drives along, sees something, and it cuts, and he's in a bar full of dead demons. Like, <laughs> like, I, I can't remember if we made it better than that, but it was pretty close <laughs> right. to that. Um, and, uh, yeah, it was not the world's not good. best video game. But I remember, again, like, I was getting experience. So we would get these script pages through and they weren't necessarily gelling. And again, this is not Shakespeare, this thing we're making. But I was like, oh, they're not gelling with with, with how we need to flow from the gameplay into the cutscenes, And, and, and mm-hmm. like, I think there's a better way of doing this. And, you know, we were getting these pages from these fantastic writers. But if I remember correctly, they would meet up in the pub on a Tuesday and knock these pages out and then send them Tuesday evening. Mm-hmm. Like, this was not their main work. They were just doing this thing. Um, so I was like, this script is not great. And everyone kind of agreed it wasn't working for the game. So I remember I went home over the weekend and like rewrote the whole thing, brought it back in. And everyone was like, yeah, this works better. But then uh, we couldn't use that because we were obligated to use the Marvel mm. script. Or whatever. Yeah, um, with the Marvel staffers on it. But it was like, and then there was, you know, I got to do the voice acting and meet uh, all the various soundalikes. So, so even though you're working on this bad game, you're like developing all these skills that yeah, just like all that, all the yeah, all the stuff that people ask when they're like, oh, I want to get into movies. Like, how do I format my screenplay? Like, what is the process for then doing right. these things and making these things? Like, I was getting to learn all that and see inside and see how the sausage is made and 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 yeah, get to hang out. So you know, I was hanging out and, and working with voice directors who were directing the voice actors to do these, you know, not amazing pieces of work, but understanding like learning from these people how to go about directing actors how to work with actors um so we did that um other little bits of 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 dodgy projects and then the the key breakthrough was um the company i was working for had an la office um i'll do i'll try and do the short version of this and uh they (laughs) please uh were making uh, Silent Hill Origins, which was mm. a prequel Silent Hill game. And it was okay. the first Silent Hill game not made in Japan. Um, and uh, long story short, that version was not going well. Uh, my team, having made Ghost Rider, had this engine up and running, character-based thing with nice lighting and stuff. So that team came over and... Did they come over or did we do it for them? I can't remember. We had like a week where we made a Silent Hill demo in our engine so mm-hmm. that we could show some progress and like, look, this this game is going to work. They went away, used our engine, um, but more time passed and the game was still not looking good. Um, and me and I, the lead artist I worked with, Neil Williams, who's fantastic, were both huge fans of Silent Hill and huge fans of, of that kind of storytelling and, and what Silent Hill meant at that time as a game that hit a kind of high bar in terms of the types of stories you could tell in the video game. And so we were like, it's so annoying that these people are getting to make this thing and they're doing such a bad job of it and and we would love to get our hands on this. And so we kept petitioning for that. Eventually, the powers that be were like, okay, okay, okay. If this game doesn't get better, we're going to get sued, whatever. So um, (laughs) it was given to my team and we took over this project and essentially uh, half the time and money or more had been spent uh, and we weren't getting that back so we had a very small amount of time to finish this game and we were told look just just patch it up and 
get it. Roadworthy. Yeah, you were really working development hell for every every one of these that's, projects. That's all video games, I yeah. think. Um, and, but our take on it was like for this to actually, and our, we were not setting a high bar here. Our, our thing was this should not be an embarrassment to the series. Mm-hmm. Um, we have to throw a lot of this out. I have to throw out all the character designs, monsters, the story, all these things, because it was uh, it was a prequel game that didn't actually make sense as a prequel. Like, <laughs> right. It was seven years prior to Silent Hill One, but characters who were uh, who who should have been seven years old in this version of the story were actually busty teenagers, and the the Doctor who in Silent Hill One is a is is Bill, Bill Pullman from uh, Lost Highway, essentially. Um, and in Silent Hill 1, sees the supernatural for the first time. In this prequel, was a 60-year-old man who is dissecting zombie <laughs> corpses and talking about quantum theory um, in a very creepy old man voice. Um, so we doesn't make sense. And we were like, we need to throw all this out. And and it was like, you, you can't really, like, there isn't time. Um, so I went and rewrote the story in a week. Um, and then they were like, well, there isn't enough time to storyboard it all. So we can't do the motion capture. So then I would go home of an evening and I did all the storyboards myself without sleeping. Wow. And then like, similarly, we had to redesign all the creatures cause they weren't true to the, the way creatures work in Silent Hill. And again, we just don't have the time to do the concept art and the modeling and everything. So I would go home and I drew all the character concepts for the creatures and did all that. So there was a lot of just working very hard yeah. to make it happen. Um, but with that game, we ended up creating and, and being, and like we were saying earlier, like I, of all the things I've done, this is the one I'm probably proudest of in terms of we created a mediocre Silent Hill game. <laughs> um, and, and the world doesn't know this. Like the world is like, oh, those dudes suck. They made a mediocre Silent Hill game. Yeah. Screw You're them. Like, you don't know how bad it could have been. Yeah. Um, <laughs> And you did it all through your own. You threw your you threw yourself into it. Yeah, and we had an incredible, a, a fantastic team, and and like uh, we had a programmer who was like, "Oh, if this is going to be the first Silent Hill game outside of Japan, and it's going to be the first, and this was on like the PSP, like the portable mm-hmm. thing initially, um, I want to like those games were famous for the incredible rendering in them, and and the use of light and shadow." was beyond anything else at that point. So it's yeah. like, I want to make sure, even though it's a handheld thing, we have this beautiful cast shadow so that you can point your flashlight and you'll get all this evocative stuff. And and we would throw ideas at him like, oh, could we have a creature that is invisible, but when you point the torch at it, its body still casts a shadow. That mm. would be really cool and creepy. And he's like, oh, let me see if I can do this. Like we were constantly doing Yeah, you're finding cool the room things. for creativity and, and, in there. You know, like I say, our, our goal was our worst level should not be worse than the worst level of all the other Silent Hill games, which is the subway level from Silent Hill 3, if anyone's counting. <laughs> um, and it would be neat if our best level like, is good, like, like if yeah. we have some moments that are cool. Um, and we did some, some, a few neat things. But um, we made that and, and I think impressed enough people with, who were involved in the process and knew what we'd been through that um, we went off and... Uh, partly worked on um, even more development hell. There was a uh, Bratislavan-made elf game being made for a German publisher funded by film finance that we were asked Jesus to reboot. Christ. And I re- re- rewrote the whole thing as a semi-erotic spy thriller. 
I basically had this thing where they had built all these elf characters and, and all these world they had um they had a blacksmith on the team that, yeah. that actually in the real world built elven swords and then they scanned those into the game. Wow. They had someone on the team that spoke elvish. Like they but they hadn't built a game. So when we took over, we basically were given a bunch of art assets and it was like this is, I don't know. L'Oreal, the high prince of the whatever elves and blah, blah, blah. And I was like, okay, let's just forget all that. And we just laid out all the characters. And I was like, he looks like, uh, he looks like the sinister spy master. Like, oh, this person looks like so-and-so. And we just made up a new story. Yeah. And, uh, uh, and it, like I say, I looked and, cause I didn't really read much fantasy. So I was like, I need to make this something that I can be interested in. So I was like, this is a World War spy thriller. Uh, a character, a plane crashes in enemy ground, and this person enters into an uh, uh, intense relationship with this femme fatale. And so it starts with a, a griffin. This is a griffin crashing, and this woman escapes from the griffin, and then the the elf hero. Uh, did gets, this game? Did this game come out? No, it didn't come. It out didn't at come all. out, and it. Uh, and I so I. Again, like this was, I, I wrote the whole thing, wrote the whole screenplay and came out and we recorded it all here. And Troy Baker, who is now pretty well known yeah. oh, for his voices, well known, Troy yeah. Baker was our lead. He was our elf lead. Um, <laughs> and I remember there was a sex scene. You had in the real game. swords, real Troy Baker, sex yeah. scenes. There was a sex scene and none of the voice actors realized, because like... Now it's very different. You you actually take the acting seriously, but then you'd be like, "Here are three hundred lines. Just say them all. Go and and yeah. and I would you know give direction or whatever or explain context where it was needed. Um, but we got to like the sex scene, and it was uh, it was inspired by there's a, a great scene in The Big Sleep where Lauren Bacall talks about horse racing, uh-huh. but she's not talking about horse racing. Uh, she's, she's talking about, talking about sex. the sex. Um, and this was, there's a, when you get given your griffin in the game, the tutorial uh, given to you by this femme fatale character had the same vibe. So she's explaining how one should take control of the bird and and fly, but she's really talking about sex. Mm. And then they go and have sex whilst her creepy Oedipal son watches. Um, that was the whole thing. Um, and, and, and I remember like Troy Baker and I can't remember the actress's name came in. And yeah, we got like through four takes and I was like, just, I was like, just push the, the, the sex subtext more. And they were like, what are you talking about? They're like, this is a fantasy game. This is elves. I was like, yeah, but these are elves that have sex. Like, the elves have sex, I think. I don't know. I haven't actually read <laughs> Tolkien. I'm guessing they do. Um, There's other elves other than yeah. Tolkien. I was, I was intending not to digress into that game. But anyway, that, that game didn't come out. But it was another chance for me to just play around yeah. and, and mess around and, and play characters. <laughs> I really got to hear about how you got to the game. Like, how how did you come to her story? Um, so, yeah, fast forward. So the next game I made was uh, Silent Hill Shadow Memories, mm-hmm. which actually was the first good game I made. And and a lot of people loved that game and did a lot of interesting storytelling stuff. Mm-hmm. And, and that was the first time I sat with a blank sheet of paper and was like, I get to play in Silent Hill and it's not a remake. I'm not fixing a broken project. You're actually writing the game. So, and and at that point, Silent Hill as a franchise was one of the few franchises that gave you permission to do interesting story things. Mm-hmm. Set in the real world, you're dealing with characters that have an inner life. Like horror games back then were the only games where 
you could get away with it not being fun and empowering constantly. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, so you could actually make I the took player scared all or disempowered. Of my ideas from the interactive fiction world about framing devices, protagonists, uh, unreliable narrators, exploring theme through puzzles, like all that stuff, and put it in to this game that was ultimately about the complicated grief of a teenage girl. Mm. Um, and I would never have been able to pitch that to a publisher outside of that. Aside scenario. of it being a Silent Hill game. And I remember countless times it would be reviewed by by publishers and producers and things and they'd be like, Oh, this isn't for me, but I get I get it Silent Hill. So <laughs> <You know? laughs> um, So that was like that was the point where uh, I sort of sat back and was like, Oh, this is the thing I've been wanting to do all this time. Mm-hmm is tell these interesting interactive stories and I've ended up in this position where I'm getting to write and direct these things um and this was so this was the point where um around that time you had things like BioShock right where um it felt like that idea of like a prestige single player story game that people outside of games are going oh BioShock is is clever and yeah interesting um it was getting write-ups places yeah. yeah it felt like oh that's a thing like I want to work on more of these meaty story driven mm-hmm. things that are doing interesting things with narrative. Um, so then the next project was um, another reboot. Uh, it was a reboot of the Legacy of Cain mm-hmm. series. I remember so, those games, yeah. You know, again, like as a as a game franchise, especially like Soul Reaver, um, they were notable for being. Uh, not serious, but like they had this Shakespearean tone mm-hmm. and, and some very layered storytelling um, that that got very complicated um, and these very memorable kind of anti-heroes, um, very atmospheric games. So we were rebooting that and and trying to do as much interesting story stuff as possible. Like there were a hundred interesting ideas going on in that game. Right. We worked on that for three years. Uh, had the whole story mapped out, built a bunch of gray boxes, all this kind of character art and stuff. We'd spent a year doing motion capture, which was really fun because we were we were working in the UK, and at this point we had you know it was performance capture, so it's no longer in a voice booth. But to cast that, we were going around and and trying to cast all of the solid British TV film actors. And we had like a whole range of, of like regional accents. Um, and everyone we spoke to would be like, I'd love to do this, but I've just signed up for nine months exclusivity to HBO. I'm only in two scenes, but they don't know when they're going to shoot them. Mm-hmm. And we were like, what the hell is HBO working on? That They booked up all of these actors and then it was Game of Thrones. Yeah. <laughs> So we were competing. In fact, our original lead, we shot like a vertical slice with an original with our lead, and he then dropped out because he was signed up as one of the Dothrakis. So we did that. So we did a, a yeah, we spent like a whole year shooting that with some fantastic actors. Um, and after three years, that was cancelled. Um, <laughs> the game was cancelled after three years of work. Yeah. Um, game and, development, man. Fuck. And this was so. This was a point where the uh, I guess like the PlayStation Four was not yet out, was on the horizon. Mm-hmm. Mobile gaming had happened and the billions of dollars of revenue from free-to-play stuff 
was a thing. And so the game publishing companies were kind of terrified. They were like, mm. will people buy the next generation of consoles? Games are costing 100 times more than they used to. Can we even make money doing these things? Like, right. uh, games as a service is now a thing. I like, mean, we can't make single-player yeah, games Yeah, they're still anymore. in the middle of having that, like, yeah. uh, when... You know, we've got free games competing with $60 games, and the $60 games cost untold millions to make and years and years. Like, how is the just the numbers are not adding up is like a problem that like all developers are grappling with right now. Yeah. Um, so at that point, I, I kind of looked around and I was like, geez, maybe no one's going to make these games that I want to make. Like, yeah. how many people are making a big budget single player? thing right now right, you it's just had you like, just had a project you're on for three years canceled yeah it's gonna be like naughty dog is probably making one yeah uh so that was the point where i was like i don't know if it's worth me trying to make this happen in the the traditional games industry at large and i was starting to see smaller teams like indie was obviously a thing um but the question in my head was like can i tell the stories I want to tell, can I make the kind of games I want to make in an indie world? Because, you know, some of the best indie games take those constraints and kind of run with them. I didn't want to feel like I was making clever compromises. Like, I didn't want to make a $500,000 version of a game that should have been a $10 million game, right? yeah. But yeah, so I was kind of wrestling with like I knew how much money it cost to do motion capture and I knew what it cost to get a good looking character on screen I could go and try and do an indie thing and kickstart it or whatever and I feel like I could get a little bit of interest off of I can cash in my Silent Hill cred um, so I was thinking around like exploratory horror games mm-hmm. and there's a lot of interesting exploratory kind of horror games in the indie space um, but I just Every time I would start on an idea, it would be like, well, I know I'm not going to have any characters on screen. So uh, why are the characters all gone? Uh, and I, I'm not comfortable with that compromise. Um, but I was seeing um, teams like uh, Simago, um, who uh, it's an incredible series of games, um, starting with Year Walk and then Device 6, that were these mm-hmm. phone games that that for me fully executed on what those games should be mm-hmm. um like the the games they made it didn't feel like if you gave them an extra five million dollars that game would be any different right um and so i was like well it look, like some... fits its constraints well and i could tell that that i was feeling that pull because i was getting really jealous of these guys i'm yeah. like I'm, I'm sat there trying to figure out how do i pitch publishers to let me go and make this interesting story thing and so i was like okay i'm gonna do it i'm gonna try and come up with an indie game. Um, and so her story came out of um, me figuring out, basically, uh, we got a small amount of money because my wife's dad had died and uh, had died due to workplace asbestos. So wow. there was a small payout and we got a, a, a small amount of money, but it was just enough that I looked at it and I was like, if I give myself 12 months, uh, my wife's working, uh, and I take care of the childcare and use this money and a very frugal, like I've got 12 months to make a thing. Yeah. So I'm going to go make something. Thanks dad. And so knowing that I was like, well, I should make the most extreme thing. Like I should do stuff I've wanted to do, but couldn't, the, the publishers wouldn't 
go with and and do the most extreme version of that like mm-hmm. going into it knowing that you you obviously can't bake in success and, and the marketplace today is is kind of a ridiculous thing but knowing that the best chance of success is to make something different mm-hmm. like if, if you make something unique um, and something that you love that ideally has a, has a better chance than if i make uh, you know another roguelike um, right or um you know the anything that people have seen before and so i was really interested in kind of uh crime stories thrillers murder mysteries uh like growing up i was obsessed with the tv show homicide life on the street mm-hmm. there was a british show cracker which was this in, in, incredible uh crime show uh robbie coltrane plays a, a, a psychologist um I was like, I'm going to make something in this crime space, detective space. And I wrote a really pretentious little manifesto <laughs> where I was like, what are the things that I want to do that I wouldn't have been able to do? Um, and if, you know, if this is my only indie game and I have to go back working for someone, like um, I'll feel good about at least having tried these things out. Um, and so I think I wrote down... Um, no 3D exploration. So, like growing up, I was obsessed with uh, uh, the like the Looking Glass games, uh, Thief, Deus Ex, System Shock, mm-hmm. Underworld. Those, especially Shadow of Memories, was a love letter to those games, in that it was very much about this seamless world that was very immersive and about just inhabiting that world. Yeah, you're, you're like, I'm gonna do the opposite of that. Yeah, because I had the suspicion, and I realized this in making those games. And you see it in Bioshock and you see it in Gone Home. As much as people talk about environmental storytelling, um, I was aware that if you want to tell plot, you do it in your audio logs. You mm-hmm. think like Bioshock famously never lets you interact with people. It's all behind right. a glass door or it is an audio log. Gone Home was really interesting to me because when I tried to process like what makes Gone Home moving to me, it was the voice performance that reads out the diaries. Hmm. It's like, that's the bit that tugs at my heartstrings. And I knew that the developers of Gone Home originally, I believe, were being very authentic. Like, there wasn't going to be anything in that game that wasn't what you would chance across. Yeah. So it didn't have voice recordings in it. And they weren't going to use that kind of Bioshock trope. Yeah. But then when they were playing it, they, they felt like they were missing something. And they said, well, how about we just without there being any reason for it, like play the voiceover mm-hmm. of these diary entries when you find them. Um, and, and that worked. So I was... It, it's, it's true. I mean, I remember from Gone Home, one of my favorite moments in that is when you discover the dads, you know, you're learning about the mm-hmm. dad and you discover the box full of unsold self-published novels, you yeah. know? Yeah. And that is, I think, a good example of here's a story beat that I mm-hmm. literally got by discovering something. You're like going through this whole area and sort of at the end of that little branch, you find that box or towards the end. Mm-hmm. I don't even know where it was. I just remember that moment. Um, and uh, and you, oh, wow, I learned something about him. It felt like a story beat. But at the same time, it's, yeah, it's so hard to do that just by discovering things. How do you tell a story that way? And even when I'm thinking about, again, I always think about like Riven, you know, the the Myth sequel mm-hmm. where you're exploring and like discovering. It's such a good game. Yeah, wonderful game. Uh, but when it comes time for the story, you find a book and you read the journal entry. Yeah. You know, or, you learn all about the characters by or seeing what's in the Or you get a little drawers. bit of green screen 
of an actor right. walking on screen and, go, and going, oh, you're trapped in this cage. I will now talk to you for five minutes. Yeah. And then I will release you from the cage. Yeah. <laughs> once my exposition is done. Yeah. Um, and I've left the room entirely. Yeah. Uh, yeah. It's, uh, so, so fair point. It's, uh, story movement is hard to do with environmental storytelling. With environmental storytelling, you can get the context. Yeah. But you and, can't get And a lot of those games, um, and I was thinking a lot about what is interesting about detective stories. What, and yeah, and, I, and I'm, you know, working on Silent Hill, I knew that, especially like when we did Origins, because we had so little time, we said, we're not going to do anything innovative. We are going to just take the template mm-hmm. of the classic Silent Hill games and run with it. And you have, yeah, you have the atmosphere of the environment, but you know that the story is happening through these little beats um, and through the cutscenes. Like there'll be the notes and then there maybe will be a big cutscene for a big character moment. Um, so kind of thinking about it, I was, um, I wanted to f- figure out what did it look like if I threw that out. And simply, you know, again, coming out of the, the text world, I knew that um, people had done interesting things that were not spatial. The other thing I put was uh, a game about subtext, um, the process of working on Legacy of Kane and trying to write an incredibly true and deep script for the actors to perform uh I would occasionally uh, encounter conflict uh, from the publisher where there was this this sense in games that like the the story sometimes uh, is also performing duties as the tutorial mm-hmm. and as your mission briefing and this idea that well if the protagonist is you you should be under no illusions as to the protagonist's desires and needs um, and like I would get notes in this scene, the character never says what they're thinking. And, and I'd be like, well, yeah, that's like how you write. <laughs> like, like that's writing. Yeah. Um, that's called subtext. Um, and they'd be like, I really feel like the character should just say what they want in the scene. I'm like, no. But you get it, like, uh, the example I'm using, like, in a video game, a character can say, I want to go kill the dragon. Yeah. And, and they mean it. If it was a movie, I want to go kill the dragon would mean I'm thinking of leaving my wife or like I, yeah. I need to prove myself to my father. Or how or something does like the person be... say I'm going to go kill the dragon? Yeah. Like what is the performance? Do they seem a little unsure about going yeah. to kill the dragon? But essentially there's, there's subtext into that. And uh, yeah. so I was like, I want to just go and do something that really leans into that and proves that it's not a problem if all the interesting information is not in the text. And then the third and final thing I wrote was uh, no meaningful state change. And some of this comes a little bit from like Isle and stuff, but Isle as well, I guess, sits on the periphery of this of like a thing that there's there's a certain school of thought that telling stories in video games, you shouldn't tell a story like you do in every other medium. Like telling stories in video games should be systemic. Like um, what video games do best is allow you to interact with a system. So if mm-hmm. I want to, you know, that whole genre of serious games where it's like, we will model the fossil fuel industry and then you will go and play and understand how it works. And, right. Right. Um, but that idea that if you want to express an idea in a video game, it should be through systems mm-hmm. um, is one that I am uncomfortable with. Um, uh, you don't think her story does that? Um, I don't know. I think like it doesn't. Um, <laughs> I don't think derail you too much. Yeah. Because, but... no, I mean, my issue is uh, that if you try and turn people and their inner lives into systems, it can become crude or robotic, right? Mm-hmm. Um, there comes a point where you just have to write something. Like you can't yeah. create stats that track 
And people yeah. try. Now, like people... now Beverly is sad. And it's like there's a little bit fl- that flipped inside yeah. of her. And now she is in the sad state. And it doesn't feel it doesn't feel effective Like to have like a you can build a really complex mood system, but it doesn't feel real in yeah. in the same way that you can do that with a fossil fuel industry or a spaceship. Um, with the human heart, you just have to write it. Yeah, yeah. exactly. Um, so I was like, I uh, will make a game with no meaningful state change. And But the biggest uh, innovation that I was keen to explore was having spent three years working on this ambitious narrative game with a team of like 100 people. Uh, it's a horrible process. Yeah. <laughs> um, and I knew I was jealous of the idealized version, at least of like how in theory, a good movie gets made where uh, a single writer or pair of writers sits in a room for a couple of years and thinks about the story until they have the perfect screenplay, which, which you know, has all of that thinking and is the ultimate blueprint. And then that give, gets given to a bigger team and, and everyone then, um, you know, does their best to do justice to that script. Mm-hmm. But you get that creative space to sit and break the story, think about the story, get I, under the skin of characters. Ideally. Ideally. Ideally you do. I ideally. think of the movie industry is not always that pure, but that is yes. how it's supposed to work, yes. The idealized version, and even in the less pure versions, there is still an amount of time spent on the script before yeah. anything else happens. Whereas in every video game that I knew, even some of the more famous ones, uh, day one, there is a team building stuff mm-hmm. as you were trying to write the story. Yeah. And so if you are, uh, you know, famously... Uh, Ken Levine on Bioshock Infinite throughout like a whole area of the game because yeah. at that point once it had all been built and textured it was like ah it's actually not going to work for the story we're telling yeah um, I was like I'm going to give myself six months which is a luxury I won't touch a computer I, I just want to figure out this thing and and wow the story and that started with a lot of research so I did all the training for being a homicide detective and how to <laughs> conduct interrogations. I came out of that project. I really want to murder somebody just because I feel like I know how to get away with it now. I feel like I know how to do the interviews. And anyway, um, like just ahead of that true crime explosion, I was like, oh, shit, there's loads of footage online of real interviews with people that has yeah. been released uh, oh wow you know in discovery and in trials or whatever mm-hmm. um and so i watched had a week where i watched hours of like the jody arias trial was a big thing here um and they have all of her interviews with the police recorded and you can just watch them on youtube wow. and, and then read the comments of, of idiots yeah playing judge and jury um but i found that very affecting like the the intensity, you know, if you have someone that has committed a crime like that, there's probably reasons for it, right? And they've probably never had a chance to sit down and talk to someone about mm-hmm. those reasons in their life. And so the homicide detective does this thing of like, hey, you can talk to me. I'm just here to listen and ask open questions. And it becomes like a therapy session. And it's the first time, you know, these people often yeah. have spoken about these. So it's a very intense, private thing. Um, but with the framing of, of a homicide detective who's trying to get a conviction, um, and, and, you, and how how did you, were you also coming up with the game design? No, idea so, at that point of it being this random access sort of way of walking. So really, I was all I knew was like early on ish. I knew it was going to be about 
police interviews. Mm-hmm. Uh, I was like, I want to make a detective thing. I want to make a crime thing. And I was like, I and I loved like the for me uh, the the interview room sequences and homicide life on the street were the most interesting bits. And it feels like that's a clever thing to do because I'm not doing car chases. I'm not having to model all the world, whatever. Um, so it's going to be to do with interrogation rooms. And that was kind of what I knew. But I didn't know, was, was it going to be cartoon characters? Was it going to be choose-your-own-adventure dialogue choices? Like, I didn't really have a sense um, of what that was. Uh, went away and did all this research. Um, got really into watching all these videos. Um, downloading transcripts of interviews and reading those. And at some point, like, doing all that research meant that I, like, woke up one day and kind of had the idea. Wow. Um, and it was it was taking, like, I always try and latch on to uh, an idea or a metaphor or a thing that explains the interactivity. So for me on this one, it was every cop show has that beat where the cop is sat at the computer looking through the thing until they find that one little bit of information. It's like they're there till 2 a.m. scrolling through, you know, records of uh, True Detective, The Green Ears, um, or, you know, there'll be something. But that idea of the 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 effort, the labor of searching through, or like in an yeah. old show, it would be a microfiche in yeah. the library, and they'd be looking through old newspaper reports until... Yeah. Oh my God! There it is in 1967. So yeah. so happened, whatever. Um, and you you just sort of came across that as the fun thing. About so I think the... I kind of latched onto that as as a structure to it. But I just I woke up and I was like, oh, it's the videos I've been looking at. Why is why didn't like that the content? Yeah. Um, and this idea of well, why am I watching police videos? Well, it's not live. It's a cold case. Well, that means I'm looking at them through something. Oh, it's one of those computer interfaces that we see in shows and movies. Yeah. Well, how does that work? Um, I guess I'm searching to find things. And like I do a thing where when I'm writing a script, if I'm like, oh, and I'm writing a scene and it's it's Bob and his his mother-in-law and she's I'm like, didn't she wasn't there a thing where he ran over her dog in a scene I wrote earlier? So then I'll search for dog. Right. Yeah. Oh, and that's how I find that scene. So like and 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 reading through all these transcripts, I guess I was picking up on that. So that idea of, oh, I can navigate these things through kind of keywords. Yeah. Came just emerged and it all kind of coalesced. And then as I just started to think about it, I was like, oh, this makes a lot of sense. Like this is some of the freedom that I loved the promise of in text games that never materialized. Yeah. Right. In in a text game, if you type um, you know, climb out of window and the game says does not compute didn't because the window's not in as a scenery object yeah. or whatever. It it kills your immersion. Whereas if I'm Googling for something or searching for something and the word is not there, it doesn't break my worldview. It's right. just like, oh I get it. It's it's and it makes sense. And in the same way that one of the things that's so cool about the game is that, like you said, there's no state change, there's no marker of progress. In fact, my memory is that uh, there isn't really even a win state, particularly, um, unless I'm. You can you can trigger a, a thing. That you can trigger you can trigger a thing, but the satisfaction is 
you play until you've solved the mystery, really in your own mind. Yeah. You know, you you've got your notes and you're filling in all the blanks, right? Um, and you're doing you've got your notebook off to the side of the game, which in the new game in Telling Lies, you've got a notepad app right there, yeah. which is even better. And it actually makes it a really great stream game. I was playing it on stream, and it was really great because I kept I kept my notes in the little on-screen notepad, mm-hmm. and then I updated it every time I watched a clip while all my you know viewers watched, and we were sort of so it's like we're filling in the blanks together anyway uh all you're really giving folks is a bunch of video clips and a somewhat constrained way to search through them uh and all the rest of the interactivity is happening in my head i'm going oh wait she mentioned you know uh an address can i search for the address or she said this wait is there like um Mm, I'll I'll make a I'll make a really little spoiler for telling lies. Is that okay? I think okay, it's an er, I think it's an early game spoiler. There's an early clip that you find. I think you designed for us to find it early, where the character says, "You're watching only one side of a Skype conversation," and he says, "Okay, who am I? My name's David, and I live here, and this is my life. And you know, when I was 18, this happened to me, and I wrote all that down in my notes. Da da da. Okay, this is David, right? And then uh, you're." The trick in telling lies is that you're you're trying to find the other half of the Skype mm-hmm. conversation, the other person talking. And so I specifically went and hunted down that. And then it turns out he's talking to a uh, his superior as a spy. And the spy is like, all right, tell me your backstory. Tell me your fake backstory. And I'm like, oh, that was his... That was his fake backstory. I that was opened a huge door in the game for me, right? But it wasn't done by you giving me an audio log or me getting a green key that like changed the state of the game that revealed that. It was only through that change happened in my mind. The yep. recontextualization of the information happened in my mind. So it's kind of a recurring thing for actually developers I interview because I spoke to um uh the folks who did Outer Wilds, the mm-hmm. Outer Wilds, which is I love how that game the only advancement comes from your knowledge of the world, yeah. right? Every every key is you knowing something that you didn't know before. Same thing happen, happens in The Witness, um, uh, Jonathan Blow's puzzle game, uh, where every, uh, yeah, the, there's no locks other than you understanding the language of how these puzzles work. Um, and that is such a cool thing when a game does that because it feels... It feels so much richer because it's not. It's, it's solving, and it's it's a problem I knew existed. Like when I'm sit down and I'm going to make a detective game. Yeah. And I'm like, what are the problems with detective games? And even the ones I loved really foreground this video game challenge of like when the player knows a thing, uh, but the game doesn't let them act on it, like it breaks. Mm-hmm. Now, if I watch a movie and I'm five minutes ahead of the plot reveal in a movie. It does feel clever, and the movie continues to play. Mm-hmm. In a video game, if you have that disconnect, the game stops. Yeah. Right? Either I'm, if I'm not clever enough, if I'm not keeping up, I'm stuck. If I'm too clever, again, I'm stuck because I'm not doing the action that's required of me at a moment. So, and I think detective games in particular just really suffer from like the, the joy of being a detective is to infer something, to deduce, yes, and to then express that and have it confirmed. And, and in a really good detective novel or movie, you can figure it out. And if you do, you maybe enjoy it a little bit more. But if you don't, well, at the end, it's still going to tell you the answer. And you can go back and read it again if you like. I had, the, I forget what it was. I had that experience with a book or movie recently mm-hmm. where I figured something out early. And then I was like, ooh, and it made it more fun to read. But I was like, oh, but it also works if you don't figure mm-hmm. that thing out. It just works either way. And that doesn't work in a game. Yeah. So, yeah, that... Um, but I think to your point with the imagination, I think that uh, at its heart is what 
I've been doing with her story and telling lies is challenging. I think there is a sense with a lot of traditional video games that like what makes video games special is we can show everything. We can do everything. I can in GTA, I can walk across the whole of Manhattan. If there's a taxi ride, I can sit and take the entire taxi ride and gone home. I can go into every bathroom and look behind every little thing. And we think of other mediums as being like, oh, well, they you can't do that. Like you, you never see Jack Bauer go to the bathroom in 24, like because it, it's yeah. all compressed. Um, but I actually think like the, it's not it's not accidental that every other medium deals in compression and in, in reading between the lines. Like in in movies, the use of montage, even just camera cuts. Like when you were immersed in a video game and you've already got your imagination working overtime because it's it's physically involved like your fingers are doing stuff like your whole body is engaged and in this imaginary place to then take the step that i did in her story of telling lies which is to go let's just remove more let's give your imagination more to do let's give your imagination more interesting questions and really like telling lies in building on her story was going what more questions can we give you? So like, you know, you get dropped into a clip in telling lies and it might be the middle of a conversation between two people. You're only seeing one of them and you're like, who is this person? Who are they talking to? Why are they talking to them? What time of year is it? Are they angry, sad, happy? Why are they sad? Like what happened earlier in this conversation? Yeah. Um, like it, the thing is just a full of interesting questions that you're giving to the player's imagination. Um, and for me, when you have that involvement in a video game and you combine it with those opportunities to the imagination, then you, you get like something that feels really magical and kind yeah. of personal. Uh, um, I want to end on this question because you're really on this special in this special place in the games industry where you're you're really thinking of you're really bringing film into games and you're you know obviously you're casting actors which is a wonderful way around this problem of well we can't have npcs because you can't model them well well just do use real footage of real actors the hair physics is unbelievable the uh, the, the what the hair physics uh, yeah, real, yeah, actors, yeah like, real people incredible and the cloth physics is incredible yeah uh and so that's wonderful and uh your games like sort of they, they, yeah, they, they bring in, you know, I could, I recommended her story to folks because, hey, if you like true crime and you like mystery movies, to, you know, murder mysteries, you'll like this game, right? You don't need to be a games person to like it. It straddles that really well. At the same time that you're doing that, there is this like nascent movement of to do again, like choose your own adventure movies is like mm-hmm. a thing like Netflix did Bandersnatch, et cetera. There's a couple startups doing this. And when it's coming at it from that angle, my reaction is, ugh, like I don't I don't want that. You know, like there's been this thing for years, I feel for like for decades, the t- film and TV industry has been like, well, what if we give people buttons on their remotes and then they can make choices while they're watching uh-huh. the movie, right? And I feel like nobody wants to do that. Like that's, you're in a different place, right? Or, or worse, the ones where there's a whole cinema full of people voting <laughs> so that nobody gets the choice they wanted anyway. Yeah. Um, anyway. So so what is it about that? Uh, to, to me, it's almost like an Uncanny Valley thing where it's like, wait, wait, no, that doesn't work. Like, you know, but do you feel that way about it? And, and when you're thinking about interactivity so much, like what is the difference between, you know, full motion video with interactivity that sucks and that is feels really rich and allows you all those wonderful experiences that her story does. I mean, I think I, I would say, yeah, they're very different things. And I would say that if you look at a lot of the, the kind of FMV games or, or even to some extent things like Bandersnatch, they 
the the worst versions of those i think are where they take a game and then try and recreate it using movie techniques so like, oh, yeah. you know a lot of those kind of qte things where it's like you're trying to create that fluidity of game action but you, you have to shoot every version of it and it's challenging um i think the thing i've done which is fundamentally different is when i made her story and we're telling lies i i gamified if you will the act of watching like right you i'm not pretending you're the protagonist i'm not yes. trying to turn a movie into a game i'm not trying to make the protagonist the the game character which and and you know this pro it's possibly a solvable thing but i think right now there are so many challenges in terms of um and I think it works in text. Like I think if you look at Inkle's work and things like choice of games uh, is, is interesting to look at. Um, when you have the fluidity of text and the subjectivity of text and, and how dynamic text can be on a word-by-word -word basis, you can have some sense of, of embodiment as characters and you can have a kind of a, a reactivity to it that I think possibly works. There are big questions with live action where the moment where you make a character choice, right? So mm -hmm. I'm watching a beautiful piece of live action and uh, now it stops and everyone has to idle for yeah. 30 seconds or put their hand on their chin or whatever <laughs> whilst I look at some text right. and we are literally seeing my character's desires and needs written as text yeah. on screen in the middle of this fluid yeah. visual storytelling. Yeah. Kiss her or walk away. And, or and so yeah. now I'm stopping and I'm stepping out of it and I'm thinking and, and then I'm thinking about what are the consequences of this choice and and the pacing has gone to hell and then it continues. And like for me, that clash between what it means to tell a, a, a traditional cinematic narrative does not fit. And, and no one's really figured out the protagonist question of, of this idea. And, you know, famously like Roger Ebert questioned if a video game could be art. Yeah. Because to him, he was like, well, if you could choose whether Hamlet did this right. or not it's and not that's Hamlet. what he was thinking about because he had never played a good yeah and <laughs> video it's, game. but it's it's that he, you know he has a point in some ways because the choices a protagonist makes and uh as an audience you simultaneously empathize with and see the world through the pov of the protagonist but you also have some distance and yeah you know, some some cognitive stuff going on um so yeah for me what i've done is go the way that we consume information now is very dense and multi-threaded uh, just generally. And uh, if you take something like a detective story or a, a, a spy thriller, um, we know so many of those tropes that it is harder in a linear story to surprise people. Um, but what I've done is go take that knowledge and use that as a tool so that people can consume this type of story in a way that is rich and multi-threaded that does feel like the muscle memory that people have now from how they yeah absorb information um, and all that knowledge they have about uh, genre and tropes and what their expectations are like that will help them put these jigsaw pieces together yeah um, but but it will feel earned and it will live in their imagination more and, and be more interesting so I think um, and I think there's a ton more we can do and I think when you look at things like streaming platforms, uh, the level of, of interactivity and, and, and user agency 
in just choosing a Netflix show now, right? It's it's weird. It's you, you, you know, famously you can spend sixty minutes yeah. just browsing Netflix, yeah. and and that is a personalized experience where even though the thumbnails are driven by yes. my behavior, right, or just my assumptions about my gender. Like whenever yeah. I log in yeah. on my wife's account, the Godfather will be like the, you know a, a serious looking picture, and when I log in, Godfather is the cleavage of some <laughs> minor character <laughs> that they've decided is the best way to right. make somebody want to watch the Godfather. Um, but when you you know and if you think of like structurally uh, the reason network TV shows were the way they were is you know they had to be broadcast and we had to have advertisers and so and then there's a a minimum amount of time that people can spend watching a thing and people are present in front of their TV at certain hours of the day like all those structural constraints on what a television show looks like come from that the reason a movie is 90 minutes ideally is because of the size of the human bladder, because movie theaters <laughs> need to show several movies a day. Yeah. Um, you know, all these constraints. But now with streaming, we've started to slightly erode that. But that yeah. means that, like, you can have uh, a 29 minute episode or a 31 minute episode, and, and we're playing with that. But I think um, it would be really interesting to see all of that interactivity and subjectivity and personalization that exists in the rapper kind of bleed into the shows themselves. That's and really I think interesting. That, which is, you know, and I think in terms of that uh, sense that the industries are kind of converging slightly, I think my approach with Her Story and Telling Lies of going, let's think about the experience of watching things of putting story together and make that subjective and personal and interesting and richer um i think that obviously i'm super biased but i think is a is an interesting route to take i think Um, it's really interesting too and i think your work is so cool um and and because it it yeah makes us interact with those stories in a way that is still game-like but is Again, anyone can tap into and and is uh, is so rich and like you get yeah yeah it doesn't it doesn't have those same conflicts that other attempts to it doesn't have the audio log problem right and it doesn't have the do you want to kiss her or run away problem right it feels fully interactive and it gives me that interactive energy and it also feels like a real story that I am being told that I have yeah. investment in that I'm being told in a natural way there's isn't that weird friction it it like it's yeah it's awesome. <laughs> well, I, I really, I really appreciate you coming in today to talk to us about no it. Man. Thank you for being here. <laughs> Thank you for listening to part one of the fifty-two part series of Sam's Jobs <laughs> over the years. <laughs> we can next time we can dig into uh, what it's like working for a database company um, a little bit more. They used to, they used to uh, data mine our toilet breaks. Which <laughs> Are you kidding? The whole thing, which is now the world we live in. Like I think everything that's happening now with with big data. Um, yeah, I saw happening then because they were like, "Yeah, you incredibly prescient." Key card every door. They know, yeah, how long you spend in the bathroom. Well, thanks so much, man. Thank you. Well, thank you once again to Sam Barlow for being on the show. That is it for us this week. My name is Adam Conover. I want to thank our producer, Aristotle Acevedo. Hey, you can find me on social media at Adam Conover, wherever you want. You can follow me on Twitch at twitch.tv slash Adam Conover. And until next week, we'll see you next time on Humans Who Make Games.
Star Brands Audio, a, podca- <clears throat> a podcast network.